You're in the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. The Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. So in the past couple of weeks, Chris and I have been ragging on various UFO conventions where they hire some zany people to be the speakers, and they kind of put the more responsible speakers aside, and at least if the evidence of the past conference of the International UFO Conference is any indication, well, the people don't care for that sort of thing. Well, I, I wouldn't go that far. There's, there's plenty of true believers out there that just will lap up any applesauce that you put in front of them if it conforms to their pre-programmed sort of front-loaded reality views. So, no, I, you know, there, I'm sure there were a lot of people that thought it was the greatest thing that they ever experienced since uh, the invention of sliced bread. But for people that are a bit more up to speed, a little bit more skeptical and discerning, uh, have a little bit more of, you know, I think, an understanding of the complexities and how complicated this whole subject is, I, I think they were a little disappointed. But again, uh, Open Minds puts on a really good event. They spare no expense on the location, and uh, I just wish that they'd try to take the high road when it comes to the to the quality of the speakers. Uh, again, I, I really did thought uh, the inclusion of Rosemary Guiley was a real good one. Of course, Antonio is always just uh, a pleasure to listen to. He's an amazing historian. He's one of and, the, uh, I guess, undiscovered treasures in the UFO field. A lot of yeah. people don't hear of him except for that magazine, the stuff he did with Tim Beckley and his appearances on the Powercast. Right. He's one of those people who doesn't really get his due. Yeah, and Rosemary Guiley, too. She doesn't go around promoting herself. She's very low profile. She's not in it for ego purposes. It's a career for her. I mean, she is definitely a professional writer, but talk about a, a woman who really knows how to go out in the field, interact with people, and then and then come back and present that information in either book or conference form. There were enough of those types of guests. Of course, the, the first appearance of the uh, Chilean general, uh, who's the head of the UFO uh, desk down there in Chile. I mean, there were some bright spots, but, you know, you know I mean, I can't really... <laughs> I can't complain too loudly. I mean, uh, you know, we won a couple of EV awards, so I, I should be uh, extolling their virtues. But, you know, I, last year at least there were some real cutting-edge presenters. Uh, you know, there were more cutting-edge presenters than not. This year it was the other way around. Well, in the end, you wonder here the image of the UFO feel. I think that's the biggest thing. It's not that someone who sponsors a UFO conference is not entitled to earn back their investment and make a few dollars for their work. You know, no one's going to begrudge that. These are not nonprofit corporations. And even a nonprofit corporation, they've got expenses, they've got salaries, they've got to fly in all these presenters, they have to pay for hotel rooms. It's not a cheap thing to do. And take it from me, as you know, Chris, I did this once years ago. I only took a $100 bath. Today, at today's exchange <laughs> rates, maybe it would be a two right. or $300 bath. Yeah. But That's after even work... Even how he's done on the X conferences over the years. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I gather he's taken a big loss on oh, those things. Oh, big time. Yeah, thousands and thousands of dollars. So how has he survived? Does he have a day job? I don't know. Maybe we should ask his handlers. <laughs> <laughs> this is something we speculated upon some years back on the Paracast when we had one, I guess, semi unfortunate encounter with Steve Bassett where he kind of went off on us when we challenged him about putting speakers on 
the podium who were not vetted because right. maybe they well, would drag a crowd in. Well, and the same the same thing I think with uh, Stephen Greer. Of course, you know the majority of his disclosure witnesses were very very believable and uh, they had track records. But then salted in there were a few that you just had to scratch your head and go, Stephen, what were you thinking uh, getting these people up there? So. I mean, it, 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 it's the Wild West. Uh, this is a proto-scientific field. There's no standards. There's no, uh, you know, anybody can just hang themselves out there and, and uh, call themselves an expert and go around and uh, gather anonymous witnesses and, and keep contributing to the uh, ever-growing myth uh, that surrounds this whole field. And uh, it's wrought with disinformation. It's wrought with misinformation. And you just have to listen to shows like the Paracast to... Uh, help fine-tune and hone your BS meter and, you know, and just, uh, you know, kind of do your research. Uh, I keep saying that. I sound like a broken record, I know, but uh, I know everybody doesn't have the time or the inclination to do that. They just want to believe. So, you know, just be careful of that two-believer Kool-Aid that circulates out there. Right. And the other problem is here, you wonder here, you have all these disparate viewpoints. You have people who are going on those lecture tours. They're appearing on radio and TV. And they don't have anything to offer other than some fanciful story. And, of course, the conspiracy theorists amongst you will say, hey, maybe they're government plants. I think it's just people looking for 15 minutes of fame, and this right. is the reality show of another color. You know, right now, well, reality shows are big. Yeah, or they think they're going to make a million dollars writing a book on UFOs or something when uh, <laughs> we're losing readers left and right every day. So, <laughs> I know that one of my favorite books of all time, was shockingly close to the truth, which was kind of a semi-autobiographical book co-authored by Jim Mosley, predominantly Jim with the late Carl Frock. And the thing about this book is that I know the numbers, and I won't reveal them. It's, as I say, it's Jim's business, his co-author's business, not anyone else's. The numbers were pathetic. I used to write books on how to use the Apple iMac, and I'd make more money. From that oh, book, yeah. oh, then yeah, from the UFO a lot book. People that use IMAX and will buy a UFO book. <laughs> well, now of course you know Apple owns the planet. Yeah, you know we understand now that Apple is bigger than Poland. Company in the world, uh, two years running now. That's right. What do you think of that new little uh, new little iPad? That looks pretty hot. We have a discussion of that on, of course, the Tech Night Out Live. But the most interesting thing about it is that you have this display with over three million pixels. This is this retina display, double right. work. Yeah. It's actually four times. The figures are doubled, therefore you multiply them by each other, you get four times the resolution of the current model. And we had one of our readers over at the technightowl.com look at the numbers for other people selling displays with 3.1 million pixels. And he found figures like $2,000. Right. Now, Apple sells the new iPad, or the iPad 3, whatever you want to call it, for $499 up. So the basic model is $499, and you have this display. It's the same price as last year's model with a display of one quarter of the pixels, right. also $499. They did a teardown, and they estimated Apple is paying $70 for each one of those displays. And you have to think here. Does Apple have some kind of alien technology? Maybe the technology that we recovered <laughs> from Roswell was secreted into the hands of Steve Jobs back in the 1970s when Apple was first founded. And over the years, they've tried to reverse engineer that technology, and Apple, Apple has now funneled it out to their suppliers because it's going to take a long time for any other company to build 
a display for a tablet computer with over 3 million pixels in it. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, they can do it. You know, they've uh, they got the oomph. They got the juice. Well, they better have good production because in two days they sold out their online allocation. <laughs> and people are talking about maybe four or five million copies the first month, maybe oh, 50 man. million for the year. Oh, man. I should have jumped into Apple stock back in the 80s. <laughs> oh, if I bought Apple stock at $10 a share. <laughs> and I was a journalist, you know? I was trying to be honest, forthright, trying to be responsible to my profession. So I never bought stock in the companies I covered. What a mistake. No mistake today, my friend Kurt Southerly is joining us. And Kurt sent me a letter several weeks ago and it says, you know, one person we haven't talked about, we talk about the Maury Island case, real or fanciful. But we don't talk about one of the people who was involved in the investigation, and that is possibly the original UFO pioneer himself, which was Kenneth Arnold. Yeah. You know, the legend, nine disc-shaped objects over Mount Rainier in the state of Washington, you know, near your stamping grounds, Chris. And we don't talk about him very much, but if he didn't report that sighting, if the media didn't pick him up on it and say, flying saucers, where would UFO research be today? We'll talk about Kenneth Arnold, Maury Island, and more with Kurt Southerly coming up next on The Paracast. As you know, the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service, such as Steve Jobs, the best-selling authorized biography from Walter Isaacson. For that free audiobook, go to audiblepodcast.com slash paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash paracast. You know, we develop trust in the people we know, but we don't really know someone we can see. That's why I recommend GoToMeeting with HD Faces. It's a simple online meeting service. It's GoToMeeting by Citrix. All it takes is a webcam and a click to instantly collaborate. You can start hosting your own face-to-face online meetings today with GoToMeeting. You can try it free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code PODCAST. Digestive health is the key to wellness and elimination of toxins. That bears repeating. Digestive health is the key to wellness and elimination of toxins. And Pro-EM-1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse is the key to digestive health. Pro-EM-1 is a powerful liquid probiotic, strong enough to cleanse, gentle enough to use every day. Pro-EM-1 is dairy, wheat, and soy-free, contains all natural and certified organic ingredients, contains no preservatives or animal products, supports a healthy digestive and immune system, supports weight loss, improves absorption of food nutrients, aids in controlling yeast infections, is never freeze-dried, and uses three groups of live, viable, beneficial microbes to cleanse and remove toxins. Order Pro-EM-1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse at Terraganics.com, spelled T-E-R-A-G-A-N-I-X.com, Terraganics.com. Or call toll-free 866-369-3678. That's 866-369-3678. Pro-EM-1, the raw probiotic.
We all know that Berkey Water Purification Systems are the most trusted name in water filtration. As an authorized Berkey dealer for over six years in serving thousands of satisfied customers, the Berkey Guy offers amazing specials for Berkey Water Filtration Systems. The Berkey Light Systems include a set of self-sterilizing and recleanable black purification elements that purify water by removing chlorine, pathogenic bacteria, cysts and parasites to non-detectable levels and remove harmful chemicals such as herbicides and pesticides. Order the Berkey Light System system today complete with two black berkey elements for only 231 dollars and the berkey guy will ship your order free of charge with the purchase of a berkey light the berkey guy is also offering a set of fluoride and arsenic filters for only 39.99 that's over 30 percent off the retail price call the berkey guy at 1-877-886-3653 that's 1-877-886-3653 or order online at goberkey.com that's goberkey.com today if you owe money to the IRS, you can't make the problem go away by yourself. But with the help of Dan Pilla, you can get your problem solved once and for all. Hi, I'm Dan Pilla. For 30 years, I've helped thousands of people solve their tax debt problem, and I can help you solve yours, too. We take a very simple but proven three-step approach to solving your problem. First, we stabilize IRS collection actions so you don't have to worry about the IRS seizing your bank account or paycheck. Next, we build a comprehensive plan to get your tax debt reduced to the fullest extent possible, sometimes even completely eliminated. And finally, we work with you every step of the way to get your problem solved once and for all. Call us for a free consultation. Call 1-800-346-6829. We'll work together to get your problem solved guaranteed. Dan Pilla has been protecting taxpayers from the IRS for three decades, and he can help you too. Call us today at 800 800- 346-6829 that's 800-34-NO-TAX Hi, this is Ted Phillips listening to the Paracast and it's as good as it gets, believe me My old friend Kurt Southerly has been investigating UFOs for many years, dating back I guess to the 70s and I, as an older person, have been around the field for quite a bit of years myself. But Kurt, as a reporter, a real reporter, has done a lot of the legwork that's required in investigating these things, not just sitting back and reading books, but calling people, going on the scene, etc., etc. Kurt, welcome back to the Paracast. No, it's good to be back, Gene. I wanted to ask you about the topic of our discussion. We hear the legend. A businessman sees nine disc-shaped objects June 24, 1947. His name is Kenneth Arnold. And we hear about that, we think about the impact, but we don't know too much about the man or maybe his connection to the Maury Island mystery. Tell us, who was Kenneth Arnold? Well, Kenneth Arnold was, uh, at the time of his, I guess you would say, infamous uh, June 24, 1947, sighting. He was 28 years old. He was 28 years old in June 24, 1947, which was the uh, the day that he made his uh, famous sighting of nine flying objects in the vicinity of uh, Mount Rainier in Washington State. And uh, I guess most most of your listeners have probably heard a little bit about Arnold, uh, but they probably don't know a lot about the man himself. Uh, he was... He was your prototypical uh, American patriot. He was, uh, as, a, as a youngster, he had been an Eagle Boy Scout. He uh, was 
an all-state football player, and I guess he had intentions of becoming uh, going pro when he got older, and there was some kind of a knee injury, so that prevented that. He was a world-class uh, swimmer and, and uh, board diver. Uh, essentially, he was almost Olympic level. Uh, he was an, uh, an aircraft pilot. He had a private uh, private pilot's license. He was a um, a deputy sheriff's uh, a deputy sheriff out in the state of Idaho. Idaho. Uh, he oftentimes flew prisoners uh, to uh, holding uh, holding facilities and to different uh, uh, different incarceration areas. Oh, geez. Well, he, he did so many things. I mean, he was, uh, his, professionally, he was uh, um, the, the seller. He, he was a salesman for, um, oh, what am I trying to think of? Um, fire control equipment. And, and you have to excuse me. Some of this, I'm, I'm dredging some of this up from memory. It's been quite a long time since I've actually written about any of this. But uh, he, he just, he, he he was just an all-around great guy, and I was fortunate. I was able to actually get a, a short telephone interview with the man about uh, about his experiences, both in insofar as his sighting and uh, later events that occurred, which uh, in Tacoma, Washington, events that are very much like something out of the X Files. They're just. Uh, I'm not sure what what direction do you want to take this, and where do you want to start? Let's start with Kenneth Arnold's actual sighting. Because that's where the word flying saucers came from. But as I recall, the actual objects he saw weren't saucers. Well, apparently the lead object was different. The lead object was more of a crescent shape or a flying wing shape. The other objects apparently were disc-like. The the fact that the lead object was different was something he kind of held back from the media for a long period of time. He didn't really talk about that. But the, essentially, the sighting occurred when he was—he uh, was on one of his business trips. He was heading for, uh, I believe, Cahalas, Washington State, and he was flying his uh, Call Air A2 aircraft, which was a small single-engine aircraft. And he decided to divert from his uh, flight path to look for a, a, a crash of a, of a C-46 Marine transport. So, ever the hero here, he's just trying to do something good. Well, again, he was. He was also part of a search and rescue uh, team of flyers. He knew the area. He knew the the area around Mount Rainier and the and the, the, the mountains and around that area of like the back of his hand. So in, he decided he had a little extra time. He thought, well, the crash had actually occurred the previous year. There were, I believe, if I can recall correctly, that I think there were eight marine transports that were. They, they were caught up in a heavy snowstorm. One of them went down and disappeared, and it was carrying quite a number of Marines on board. The, the, uh, the military conducted a search for about two weeks. They gave it up. The survivors of the, uh, of the crash, of the, of the missing people, uh, put a reward up. I think they put up $5,000, and that was continuing the following summer. And Arnold, he really wasn't looking for the reward. Again, he, you're right, he was just trying to do a good deed. He thought, well, I'll swing around and see if I can spot this wreckage someplace. He searched for a while. He didn't see anything. He started back on his flight path. And at that point, something flashed off the, the cockpit of his aircraft. It was like a, a reflection from the sunlight. And it caught his attention. Then he saw another flash, and when he looked... Up ahead, about he figured about 23, 24 miles in front of him, and within in the vicinity of Mount Rainier, he saw these objects moving in single file or what they called echelon formation, and they were just sweeping in and out among the peaks. 
And as they, they passed behind a sub-peak of Mount Rainier, he, was, he, he knew the distance, and he also knew the distance between the various peaks, so he was able to calculate roughly the speed they were traveling at. And the speed was incredible. He estimated, and he, he, he actually downplayed the, uh, the, the, the estimated speed for the sake of, of accuracy, but he figured it was probably between 1,200 and 1,600 miles per hour. Now, later that year, in October of 1947, Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier in the Bell X-1 rocket plane. That was the fastest any man had ever flown at that time, and he was only traveling at 700 miles an hour. So obviously these objects, if Arnold's estimation of their speed was correct, were far flying in, far in, in great excess, or in, how am I going to say this, in, uh, in, in tremendously faster than anything we had flown before. And he, he had no idea what this was. He just he saw these objects. They startled him. He, being a professional pilot, being very careful, he checked the surrounding area. The only other aircraft within the vicinity was uh, an airliner, I believe, that was again also to his port side or left side, and that was trailing him by about seven or eight miles. But there was nothing else around. Now, this kind of aircraft, did it have instrumentation or what? No, he was. He had uh, limited instrumentation. It was a small, single-engine aircraft. Uh, he was pretty much a seat-of-the-pants flyer. I mean, this, you're talking about an, an era where we didn't have uh, a lot of um, radio electronics. I mean, he had. Uh, I don't tell you the truth. I don't think he had a radio on the aircraft. Uh, he simply flew by by compass headings, by his uh, his observation of the ground. So he couldn't call the control tower and say, "We've no. got a problem." No, he, he wasn't able to contact anybody and let them know that there was something out there. He just continued on to his next destination. He landed and immediately started telling a number of the people at the airport what he had experienced. And he, was, he got all sorts of reactions. He, got, he, he was ridiculed by some. Other people were saying, well, it's probably one of those rockets that they're testing or maybe it's something the Russians have. And nobody really knew. Uh, anyway, he uh, he... Continued on after he uh, he refueled. He continued on to his final destination, and uh, he ended up talking to, I believe, a reporter at the uh, uh, East Oregonian uh, newspaper. And they they did a brief interview. The reporter uh, took a took a statement from Arnold, sent out two or three paragraphs. Now, how long and, was this after the sighting? At what point did we first learn? that this happened, and I'll get the answer in a moment. We have Kurt Southerly joining Gene and Chris. You're in Derrickhead. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. If you want to get your website online and you need reliable service, first-class service at the lowest possible price, there's only one place to go. Well, DreamHost has a special promotion with our show where they'll offer you unlimited disk space, unlimited bandwidth, one-click web apps such as WordPress, 24-7 support. You can save over $55. You want to know how? Go to DreamHost.com radio. DreamHost.com radio. Fake 
Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Have you ever seen a U.S. postage stamp featuring Abraham Lincoln, Ben Franklin, or George Washington? If you're into stamp collecting, you know it's a fun, affordable hobby. America's leading stamp dealer is the Mystic Stamp Company, and they want you to have their free 140-page color catalog. Go to mysticstampad.com, the website of the Mystic Stamp Company, serving stamp collectors since 1923. Mystic Stamp is well-known in the industry for its experience, superior customer service, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Go to mysticstampad.com to request your free 140-page U.S. stamp color catalog packed with collecting tips special offers, color photos, and over 4,600 available stamps. Call 800-433-7811 or go to mysticstampad.com. That's 800-433-7811 and ask for your free U.S. stamp catalog or mysticstampad.com. Mystic Stamp Company, America's leading stamp dealer. Are you having trouble paying your mortgage? Maybe your mortgage loan is upside down or in foreclosure. Maybe the bank already foreclosed on you. Don't sit around being a victim of bank fraud. Fight back. We have the tools to help you fight back. Here's how. Go to InspectorAudit.com and click on the GCN Radio Special. Order a summary audit. Find the real truth about your loan. Maybe like me, you'll find your bank loan was paid off already. Maybe, like me, you'll find your bank defrauded you at the closing. And maybe, like me, you will go after them. Did you know 78% of home loans in the last 10 years violated consumer credit laws? We should not let the banks get away with this fraud. Go to InspectorAudit.com and click on the GCN Radio Special. Order a summary audit today and find the truth about your mortgage loan. That's InspectorAudit.com or call 855-373-4948. That's 1-855-373-4948. That's what it sounds like when a burglar kicks in the door of a dark house that looks like no one is home. Don't let your home be the next target. Make it look like someone is home watching television with fake TV. Fake TV is a small electronic device that makes the same light as a real television. So from outside, it looks like someone is home watching TV. Fake TV plugs in just like a lamp on a timer, but is far more convincing to burglars. Fake TV deters burglars, costs far less than an alarm, and is highly recommended by numerous police departments. Use it anytime you're away from home. To order your fake TV for only $34.95, go to faketv.com. Or call 1-877-5-FAKE-TV. Each additional fake TV is only $29.95. So get one for you and one for a loved one for safety, security, and peace of mind for both of you. Call 877-5-FAKE-TV or go to faketv.com. FakeTV.com, the burglar deterrent. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And if you'd like to catch up on past episodes, we have hundreds of shows for you to download direct from theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. 
or check us out at iTunes. With Gene and Chris in the Paracast, and Chris, by the way, is on the phone today because his copy of Skype is non-functional. This has all happened since Microsoft acquired Skype. It's their fault, right, Chris? Yeah. Okay, it's everything is Microsoft's fault. Remember that. I guess in a few years it'll be Apple's fault, but still time for Microsoft's fault. Okay, Kurt Southerly is talking to us about Kenneth Arnold, the guy whose sighting had created what? A legend we don't know. Okay, I was going to ask you, Kurt, before we broke, how long did it take from the time Arnold had the sighting until we learned about it in the press? Um, it was about a day went by. He, uh, when, when he made, when he landed... Um, after the sighting, his first landing, that was in, um, uh, at the, I believe it's pronounced the Yakima Airport in, uh, in the area of, uh, of Boise. Um, that's where he told a number of people that he had experienced something, he had witnessed something, and he was, he, he was ridiculed by some, and others basically said, well, it was, it was something the government was testing. Anyway, the next day, he, uh, he landed in Pendleton, Oregon, and that's where he talked to a reporter named uh, Bill uh, Baquette, and he was a reporter for the uh, Pendleton East Oregonian. And he he told uh, Pendleton his story, or briefly kind of summarized it. Pendleton sent out a short story on this, and I think it went out. Actually, I think it went out over the Associated Press, and uh, or maybe maybe it was UPI at the time, United Press International. And uh, anyway, the Pendleton uh, went off off to lunch. Didn't really think a whole lot about it. He got back, and the place was in Bedlam. I mean, everybody was, he was getting calls from all over the place. The newspaper was being inundated with phone calls about about more on this flying saucer story, as it, it kind of became uh, came to be known. At what point did the name Flying Saucers become public? With the initial report, or what? Uh, yeah, he at one point Arnold made a comment he, in describing the objects. He said that the they they moved through the air, uh, kind of like saucers skipping over the water, and that was sort of reinterpreted as flying saucer, and it obviously became legendary. And Arnold had no intention of coining that phrase. It was just the way he described it because they had been moving in this this echelon formation, just sort of bobbing through the air, and they were obviously powered or flew in, in a fashion unlike any aircraft that he knew about or that he had heard of to that point or that anybody else to that point had ever heard about. In fact, the idea that this could have been a product of, of uh, Russian or Soviet Union science or any other terrestrial science at that time was, was kind of ludicrous, but nobody, they didn't know what to think, the, everybody that heard about this, and there were other sightings too at the time. Uh, in fact, maybe I should touch on that a bit. Yeah, let's uh, talk about what happened around it. But did the initial flurry of reports all surround Kenneth Arnold and flying saucers? Was it also about other reports? His was the, the trigger. Uh, his was the, the first that really made headlines. And, and Arnold's story and his photo was splashed all over newspapers all over the country. Uh, but in subsequent days, this, this was, of course, that was June 24, um, uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, another individual, uh, an airline pilot named Emil Smith, E.J. Smith, or I believe in some accounts his, his middle initial is H. Uh, Smith and his uh, co-pilot and some passengers on, on an airliner that he was flying spotted a formation of objects that he described as being very similar to what Arnold had seen. In fact, this was, this was July 4th of 1947. And uh, Arnold and Smith later actually met. They uh, uh, went to a newspaper office to look at uh, 
had a photograph of a, of a strange flying disc that had been taken by a U.S. Coast Guardsman. And the, uh, the paper had published the photo, and they wanted to see an original copy of it. Arnold went there, and he was, he was introduced to Smith, who was there, maybe not coincidentally. Uh, now, Kurt, uh, excuse me for interrupting, but was this a Coast Guard report from the Puget Sound area? No, this was uh, something different. I believe this was a Coast Guardman who happened to be driving on a highway, and he saw something and took a photo of it. The, oh, uh, the details of the photo aren't, or, or that particular episode aren't recounted very clearly in most reports, simply because it, it's it's almost a it, it's almost an after uh, an afterthought in in the annals of, of what was occurring at that time. Well, I also seem to remember that there was uh, quite a wave of sightings that occurred over the next week, ten days, prior to the Roswell event, where yeah, yes, I think in Idaho, right. Oregon, Washington, that whole Pacific Northwest area, even down the coastways, uh, had quite a flurry of reports, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and, and there were the reports all over the place, and it's it's a matter of speculation as to whether the reports were triggered by Arnold sighting, in many cases, maybe many of them maybe being made up or whether it was simply that people were suddenly literally watching the skies and taking notice to things that they would have, wouldn't have noticed before. But you're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, there was a whole wave, a whole flurry of sightings actually continued on pretty much through the rest of that summer. Now, I know it's interesting here. The supposed official Air Force explanation of Arnold's sighting is that that was a mirage. Where'd they get that from? Wow, that's that's something I had never heard before. That's uh, according to the Wikipedia report on it, on Arnold. They claim that's what the Air Force said, which was disputed, and they mentioned by people like Jerry Clark, who said, obviously, it could not have been a mirage. And certainly, you think an experienced pilot, someone who is really a seat-of-the-pants kind of guy, he's not inundated with all this instrumentation as you have airline pilots today. You know, today, the plane can almost fly itself. Then you had to do all the work yourself. Well, the uh, the military was uh, they did go they did talk to Arnold to invest uh, to investigate his his account. It was uh, uh, Captain Brown and Lieutenant Davidson, I believe, were the names of the two men. They were with uh, uh, Army A two Intelligence, and they visited Arnold at his home after the uh, after some of the uproar had died down, and Arnold. Up to that point, had, had, he was being inundated with mail. He received tons of letters from all over the country from people that wanted information about the sighting or that had sightings of their own. Some of the, some of the letters were cranked. Some of them were from people that were genuinely mystified by what was going on. And uh, these two uh, officers showed up. They interviewed Arnold, very polite, took him very seriously. And, of course, at the time, there was some concern about national security. I mean, was this something the Russians had? Nobody knew. So they, oh, Were these they, the same two officers that were there to investigate the uh, Harold Dahl and Fred Kutzman yes. claim of the, uh, the Maury Island? That, yeah, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but the same two that ended up dying in a, in a mysterious plane crash. Right, yeah, I'm just, just checking. <laughs> yeah. So they had a background with Arnold. Yeah, they did. Uh, they uh, they gave Arnold a phone number uh, when they after they they looked through all of his mail with his permission and they gave him a phone number and they said look if you can think of anything else or if anything else happens feel free to call us then uh, they they went on their way and Arnold really never expected to hear from him again and it was sometime around then that he received a phone call from some guy that I believe you knew Gene a guy named Ray Palmer. <laughs> This is how Kenneth Arnold became from businessman and UFO witness into actually UFO researcher. That's exactly right. 
um, he um, he got the call from from Palmer, who was at the time I, I guess the editor of the uh, was it was it Fate magazine or was it Amazing that he edited at the time? At that point, I think it was Fate. Now, Fate magazine was founded by Curtis Fuller and Correct. by Ray Palmer. And later on, they had a falling out, the Fullers and the Palmers, I guess, and Ray went off to do his own thing. But this time, of course, Palmer contacted Arnold, which had to be something out of the blue. By the way, if you've read the book by Edward Ruppelt, the report on unidentified flying objects, he calls Palmer, quote, the Chicago publisher. And we'll get into more of that in a moment. By the way, there are lots of ways to contact us here at the Paracast. You can write us, news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. You can send us a tweet. The Paracast. What else can we be? The Paracast on Twitter. Or check out our forums, forum.theparacast.com. Once again, that's forum.theparacast.com. Sign up. Get in on all the action. We have Kurt Southerly joining us, Gene and Chris, on The Paracast. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. We also have swag. You know, we have all these exclusive Paracast things that you can buy. We've got like, I guess, 60 or so different items. And entails T-shirts, sleeves for notebook computers, iPad cases, mouse pads, the Paracast Jumbo Tote Bag... All sorts of T-shirts and jackets and stuff like that for men and women. We have a Paracast aluminum water bottle. All this stuff, you go to store.theparacast.com, store.theparacast.com. What makes it special is that the items are the best quality. Great T-shirts, fabrics, and they have our official logo on them. That's what makes them special in multiple sizes and colors. We even have stuff for children. Stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the Paracast. You go to store.theparacast.com, stop by, and take a shopping tour. Healthy soils grow healthy plants. So before you plant your survival garden this year, is your soil healthy? Maximize your crisis garden soil with EM1 from Terraganics. EM1 organic soil conditioner, fertilizer amendment, and compost accelerant provides healthier gardens and faster, efficient garden composting. EM1 from Terraganics.com quickly improves soil structure by increasing nutrient availability and converting organic matter into soil humus. This improves seed germination and root growth, improves plant quality, size, color, flavor, nutrient value of fruits and vegetables and improves shelf life. And when rain is not in the forecast, no worries. EM1 improves moisture retention in soils, helping reduce drought stress. Just like you prepare all else, prepare your crisis garden for maximum yields with EM1 from Terraganics.com. Order now at T-E-R-A-G-A-N-I-X.com or call toll-free 866-369-3678. That's 866-369-3678. Terraganics. Life's getting better. Iodine protection packs from HempUSA.org are now in stock for immediate delivery worldwide. Our iodine protection packs include micro plant powder, green life kelp, red palm oil, and our clear roll-on iodine that will feed the body the iodine it needs. All iodine protection packs are in stock. 
save you money, and ship for free in all 50 states. Visit HempUSA.org or call 908-691-2608 today. HempUSA.org has a revolutionary wonder food for detoxing the body and rebuilding the immune system. Microplant powder can help unclog arteries and soften heart valves while removing heavy metals, virus, fungus, bacteria, and parasites. Plus, it cleans and purifies the blood, lungs, stomach, and colon. Keep your body clean with Microplant powder. Visit us at HempUSA.org or call 908-691-2608 today. The perfect water for drinking, bathing, and cleaning right at your fingertips? Yes, you can now have the most powerful water ionizer on the market for less than half the price of competitors. The Genesis Platinum Water Ionizer from GibsonsHealth.com creates the perfect drinking water of 9.5 pH, automatically cleans every time you use it, and even tells you when to change filters. Other 7-plate water ionizers are priced at two or even $3,000, but the Genesis Platinum is only $16.95. Get yours today at GibsonsHealth.com. Under Nutritionals, be sure to click on Essential Oils for Aromatic Liquids extracted from a broad range of flowers, stems, seeds, and bark. And to really balance your body, click on Go Green, the most complete green drink available, necessary for survival. All this and more are found at GibsonsHealth.com. Call 800-388-6844. That's 800-388-6844. Or GibsonsHealth.com. Healthful living since 1974. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned in to the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We have Kurt Southerly, and we're talking about Kenneth Arnold. Kurt, of course, has written about UFOs for years. He actually had a book out called UFO Mysteries, A Reporter Seeks the Truth. It was published about 10 years ago. It is still available if you want to get a copy. It's a really a great book. It's actually the one and only UFO book that my son has ever read. So, Kurt, you have to feel yourself proud that you inspired him to read a little bit about that subject. Okay, we're talking about Kenneth Arnold and about the fact that out of the blue, Ray Palmer, of course, he's notorious or famous for the Shaver mystery about creatures underneath the earth and Richard Shaver. He was the editor of Amazing Stories. He knew people like Edgar Rice Burroughs, and that's the guy who wrote the novel on which this movie, John Carter, is based. So, you know, Palmer got around both science fiction and the paranormal. So he calls Kenneth Arnold out of the blue. What happened next? Well, according to uh, most of the accounts, uh, all the, in fact, pretty much all the various accounts that, that pertain to this episode, uh, Palmer told Arnold that he had received a letter from two harbor patrolmen in Tacoma, Washington, and they, these two harbor patrolmen, and I put quotes around that, uh, they claimed that they had spotted flying disks or flying donuts or something <laughs> over uh, Maury Island, which uh, today is actually a peninsula. At the time, I guess it was actually an island distinct and separate from the mainland, but now it's uh, due to ge- uh, geological changes, it's now a peninsula. Well, of course, there's no global warming. Right. And anyway, this is in Puget Sound. And uh, so Palmer essentially wanted to know if Arnold would fly out there to investigate at all expenses paid. In fact, I think I, I need to back up on something. I've jumped, uh, jumped ahead of myself a little bit. Initially, when Palmer contacted Arnold, he asked him if he would write an article for the magazine about his sighting. And Arnold 
did not do this. He declined to do this. Instead, he sent him a copy of a report that he had filed with the Air Force. And in fact, Arnold ended up in the uh, in the record books, in the aviation record books, uh, because he was the first pilot to officially report the, the, the sighting of flying saucers or unidentified flying objects. Anyway, after when Palmer contacted him again, it was about the letter that he had received from these two harbor patrolmen, and it was apparently sent to him by somebody named Fred Lee Chrisman, who later became famous for other reasons, and we can get into that later. Uh, but in the letter, Chrisman said that, that uh, they had spotted these objects, that uh, something had happened, and uh, you know he was wondering if, if uh, Palmer would like to hear more about this. And Palmer contacted Arnold and asked him to fly out. Arnold initially declined, and then he was talking about this with a friend of his, uh, a colonel, I believe the man's name was Colonel Wheeland, who was supposed to have been a big shot at the Nuremberg trials at the end of World War II. He was, he was a close friend of Arnold's. And there's some suspicion that uh, uh, that he may have had had something to do with all of this. Arnold was surrounded by some strange intelligence people, or people that, that were allegedly part of the intelligence community. Uh, there was an aviation editor at the Idaho Daily Statesman, a guy named Dave Johnson, who was rumored to have been part of the intelligence community and supposedly had actually been compiling a dossier on Arnold after after all of this occurred. Uh, there were there were a number of other people, but Arnold was in a position as a as a deputy federal marshal to be surrounded by these kind of people. But anyway, I'm, I'm kind of digressing. Uh, he uh, he finally agreed. Uh, after talking to Whelan, Whelan basically said, look, if the guy's going to pay you to fly to Tacoma, Washington, investigate this stuff, you know, why not take his money and do it? So Arnold decided, okay. He contacted Palmer. He said, I'll do it. Uh, he arranged to, to take off for Tacoma. He, he didn't file a flight plan. He simply left from a pasture near his home at, at the time. It was early enough in the era of aviation that you could often do that. You didn't need to file a professional flight plan. And I think his wife was really the only one that knew where he was going. Anyway, he left. Uh, he uh, he flew into Tacoma. I'm trying to remember the date. I honestly don't recall the date that he actually flew in there. Uh, but he uh, he got to Tacoma. He landed at a small airport outside of the city. Uh, he decided to land outside of the city rather than closer in because he he was he was famous. His, his picture was all over the newspapers. He wanted to go in some place where he thought nobody would know him. So were people actually just coming up in the street saying, you're Kenneth Arnold, tell me about the space people? I don't recall anybody actually saying that to him, or I didn't, never, in my research, I never uncovered that, but I'm sure that happened. And I know he, when I talked to him in the telephone, he was very brusque because he was just, he was just disgusted with the news media, so obviously he was being hounded by the news media. Uh, continually, but uh, he just—he was a, a private kind of person, and this this whole thing was just completely different for him. He was not the kind of guy to go seeking fame or notoriety, and he was just—he he just wanted to kind of get to the bottom of this because he felt it was literally felt it was his patriotic duty. You know, this, if this was something that the Russians had or something that some other country had, and it could be a threat to the United States. He needed to get to the bottom of this if he could. So he, he lands at this little airport, uses the airport payphone to call into the city looking for a room to stay at, and the city is in the, mean, in the, in the, in the throes of a, of a housing shortage. There was almost literally no place to, to stay in any of the hotels. He called every place. He couldn't, he couldn't find a room. 
So finally, he called the Winthrop Hotel, which was the largest and most expensive hotel in the city. And uh, lo and behold, they had a room registered for uh, Kenneth Arnold. Or I should say reserved for Kenneth Arnold. And he said, this has to be a different Kenneth Arnold because I didn't reserve a room. And the clerk that he talked to uh, said, well, you know, nobody else has claimed it. It's yours if you want it. So he thought, all right, he took a room. He gets into town, uh, looks through the local phone book after he got settled in, and is, starts locating, and he's trying to locate the the people, the two principal players in this alleged sighting of UFOs over over uh, Maury Island. Now, the two players were was a guy named Fred Lee Christman, I mentioned him before, and Harold Dahl. Now, the supposedly they were the operators of uh, the co-owners of a small boat and they used to they used to put out into the harbor and they'd locate drifting logs and they would snag these logs and, and bring them in and they would resell them and uh, i guess they also supposedly operated some sort of a lumber mill uh, and on this particular uh, instance uh Dahl claimed i guess he he ended up coming to the room he uh, uh arnold located Dahl's number in the phone book called him Dahl basically said, look, I don't want to talk about this, and if I were you, I'd just leave town. He just sounded real nervous about the whole thing. Well, finally, after being pressured by Arnold, he agreed to come to the hotel room. He showed up and told him the story about how he had been out on the boat. Uh, there was a, a deckhand was with him. His son was with him. The, the family dog was with him, and these objects flew overhead, and one of them appeared to be in trouble, and he said they looked like huge metallic donuts with portholes around the inside and I guess the outside of the of the objects. Some kind of strange slag-like material began to spew out of some of the openings at the center of one of the objects, which appeared to be in trouble. Uh, this stuff fell all over the water, fell, fell on the shore of nearby Maori Island, and I guess some of it hit the boat. The dog was supposedly killed. Uh, Doll's boy was supposedly injured. I guess his arm was broken or something. And uh, the windshield of the boat was was broken, and I guess the wheelhouse was uh, was damaged. Anyway, Dahl said he turned around, uh, went back. I guess he reported this to to Fred Lee Christman, who, in, depending on the stories you read, Christman was his equal. Some say he was his, his superior in the in the lumber business. Uh, and then, in any event, these two were kind of joined at the hip, it almost seems. I mean, they were closely closely involved in, in whatever was occurring at that time. Now, we can uh, ask you later, but Chrisman is a peculiar character with a yeah. strange story, but we'll get into that as we progress. Okay. So, I don't know if you're ready to take a break or not. No, no, <laughs> no. I wanted to continue with that. Go ahead for another minute or so. Okay. Um Anyway, uh, Chrisman, according to Dahl's story, didn't believe him at first, and then he looked at the damage to the boat, and he tried to blame Dahl for simply misusing the boat. But then I guess he, uh, allegedly, he went back out, and he saw one of these discs himself, which he said disappeared behind a cloud, and he found a lot of these fragments laying all over the shore of Mar Island and collected a couple boxes of this stuff and took it back. Well, Arnold... Gets this story out of Dahl. Dahl is like six foot two, built like a lumberjack, very nervous, even though he's very big and very intimidating in appearance. Uh, he, uh, he he finally leaves, and the next the next day, Arnold is awakened in the hotel room by somebody beating on his door, and it's Fred Christman. 
and he comes in and he tells his version of the story. Well, by the time this is all finished, Arnold is getting a little freaked out. He's thinking, man, I'm in over my head here. And we'll get into what might have caused that feeling in further detail. We have Kurt Southerly joining Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. If you'd like to listen to GCN programs on the go, I have great news. GCN has created a Droid and iPhone application, and it's free. Just as easy as going to GCNlive.com, click on the banner, and download. Before you know it, you'll be listening to your favorite hard-hitting GCN shows, live or on demand, right on your Droid or iPhone, 24-7 and on the go. So download the Droid and iPhone app free by clicking on the banner at GCNlive.com. Thanks again for listening to GCNlive.com. Again, that's GCNlive.com. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. Have you ever wondered why banks, stockbrokers, investment advisors won't talk about gold IRAs? They've been available since 1986, yet the financial industry won't recognize the value of gold for your retirement. Gold has outperformed paper investments, yet no word about IRAs. If you would like to have gold for your retirement, call 800-686-2237. Don't get left behind by rising inflation and low returns. Call 800-686-2237. Secure your future and call 1-800-686-2237. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. With Kurt Southerly joining us on the Paracast with Gene and Chris, focusing on first the amazing sighting that started it all, although maybe not in historical sense, but certainly in the popular media Flying saucers seen by Kenneth Arnold, and then his involvement in the Maury Island affair. Really, really strange. So, Chrisman tells a different story, Kurt, than Dahl? His story is, um, I mean, his story kind of reinforces Dahl's. He basically tells Arnold that, yeah, Dahl came to me and said he had this sighting that the, the boat was damaged by slag falling from one of the objects, which appeared to be in trouble. And then he says, you know, I didn't really believe him, so I went back out there and and found this stuff laying all over the shore at Mari Island and saw one of these objects myself. But he comes back, he tells Arnold this, or he, he shows up the next morning at the hotel room, gets Arnold out of bed, tells him the story. And uh, by the time he leaves, Arnold is freaking out. He's thinking, I don't know what to do. You know, I, I don't I don't really like these guys. I don't really trust them. I mean, he's not saying this aloud, obviously. He's thinking all of this at the time. Now, this is largely and, uh, based also on his account in that book, The Coming of the Saucers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's part of the account in, in his book. It's also something that he told me during the interview, and it's also something that he's, he's uh, reported on in other, other places since. Anyway, he, he also told me during the interview that, by the way, he, uh, he, the information that he put in The Coming of the Saucers the quotes that he has in there, the comments, they weren't made up. He actually took a small reel-to-reel tape recorder with him. He said it was one of the earliest of its kind. And he said he just wanted people to be aware of that so that they wouldn't think that he made all this stuff up. So everything that, that happened in the room, the inter- various interviews he had recorded, it'd be interesting to know if those, you know, those records are still around someplace, if those tapes would still be available. Then anyway, again, I'm digressing. He talks to he talks to Dahl, he talks to, to Chrisman, and he's freaking out. And he decides, I need help. So he thinks of, for some reason, he thinks of Captain E.J. Smith, 
this airline pilot who had spotted flying saucers and whom he had met when they were looking at the photo taken by the Coast Guardsman. So he calls Smith, and uh, Smith, as it turns out, has the day off. He flies up to, I guess he flies into Oregon to pick him up, flies Smith back to the hotel room. They're camped out in the room, and they're discussing all of this. The next day, Chrisman and Dahl both show up, tell the whole story over again. So you have these four guys sitting in the room. Chrisman and Dahl leave, and Arnold and Smith are sitting there trying to, they're puzzling over all of this, and they get a phone call. And it's a phone call from a guy named Ted Morello, who is in the UPI office, strangely enough, right across the street from where the Winthrop Hotel was located. And he says, you know, you guys are in there talking about flying saucers. And Arnold said, what do, you, what do you mean? He says, look, he said, I know what you're talking about. He said, he said, somebody is calling here telling me verbatim what you guys are discussing in the room. He said, it's like your room's bugged. That's pretty bizarre. I mean, that really makes you wonder uh, how... Uh how involved the uh, military intelligence folks or the intelligence uh, operatives, I, 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 this is pre-CIA, uh, could have been FBI? Do we have any indication who this could have been? Well, uh, nobody really seems to know. Uh, I mean, there's some indication, and, and I'm kind of getting to this, there's some indication that Smith himself may have been an informant. Uh, but in any event, at that point, when they get off the phone with Morello, they literally tore the tore the room apart looking for some kind of bugging devices. They didn't find anything. Now, from what I understand, this was like a third floor room, and it was in a corner. And they didn't. I, I guess there were no other rooms available, so they couldn't simply move to a different location. They were stuck in that room. And uh, now, in terms of bugs, understand, ladies and gentlemen, this is the late 1940s. We're not talking about these microscopic radio transmitters you can stick inside a light bulb base or something right this would have been something fairly sizable you know something that with a thorough search you should have been able to find uh anyway there were subsequent uh, interviews with Dahl and Chrisman and they, they, the whole scenario got worse and got stranger and stranger at one point Chrisman brought a box of these slag like samples into the room so they had samples of, of this mysterious substance which looked like slag from a, a smelter from something that was just dumped out of a uh, out of a, a furnace at an ore site. They had the stuff scattered all over the room. And Chrisman claimed that he had sent some of this stuff back to some lab, back east someplace to some lab asking to have it tested, but they had, he hadn't gotten any kind of response on this yet. Uh, there's some rumors that he actually sent some of this stuff to, to Ray Palmer, although I don't know if that's ever been verified or not. In any case, um, by this time, with with the the, the whole the, the whole business with Arnold and and, uh, and Smith, they're just they're 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 both freaking out, or at least that's the way it seems to Arnold. He's at, there are different times when Smith. And I'm kind of jumping around here because I'm trying to reconstruct this from memory. A lot of it. There were times when Smith and Chrisman would leave the room, and at one point they left for quite a few hours, and supposedly. Chrisman drove Smith back to Seattle so that he could pick up some personal items and his and bring his car back because Arnold had flown up there and brought him back at us in short notice. But in any case, on at least two occasions, Smith and Chrisman left the room for an extended period of time together, and there really is there's some suspicion as to, to whether these guys knew each other or not, knew each other previously. Uh, anyway, this Ted Morello kept calling and saying, 
I'm still getting a mysterious caller saying, telling me verbatim what you guys are talking about. Then they get a, a phone call from a guy named um, Lance, Ted Lance, I think his name was. He was he was a, a local reporter for for the uh, for the local paper. He called and he said that he was getting calls from a mysterious informant, and that he knew they were talking about flying saucers. Well, they hung up on him, or Arnold hung up on him. The next day, this this Lance guy shows up at the room. Smith frisks him and kicks him out of the room. Well, later on, and of course I'm jumping ahead again, uh, later on Lance wrote a newspaper story and then he subsequently ended up dying under mysterious circumstances. Uh, Now you say mysterious circumstances in what respect? Well, they're different stories. There was was one story that, that, that he died in a car crash. There's another story that he died of an extended illness, which was supposedly meningitis, but it took weeks before the, uh, uh, I guess the coroner's report came back on this. Uh, it, it, nobody really knows. And he was not an old guy. He was a fairly young man, and he shouldn't have died when he did. But he, it was just one of, one of many things that occurred during this period of time that were very, very strange. And again, I need to, I'm getting ahead of myself again, so I need to kind of back up. When all of this was going on with the bugging, that's when Arnold finally decided it's time to call in some professionals. He remembered the phone number he had for the the two uh, Army Air Force officers. He called, uh, I guess it was Davidson he called, and he called him at McCord Field, uh, which is Teddy McCord Air Force Base. And when Davidson answered the phone, he he said, look, I want to talk to you about this, but not at this moment, he said, let me call you from a different phone. He actually left his office, went to a different, I guess, to a pay phone and called Arnold back. It was almost as though he was worried that his phone was bugged. So this whole thing, and Arnold made a point of this during the interview, and I think he also made a point of it in, in his book, The Coming of the Saucers. This was something that really freaked the guy out, that he's trying to talk to this Army officer about his room being bugged and about these two shady characters who are telling him this story, and he doesn't know what to believe. And this army officer is basically saying, look, uh, maybe this isn't a secure line. Let me call it from a different phone line. So anyway, uh, uh, these two guys show up, uh, Davidson and Brown, the two army officers. They interview Chrisman and Dahl. Chrisman tells them, actually, Dahl takes off. When he finds out that the army is showing up, he splits. He doesn't want anything to do with this. Chrisman sits and talks to these two guys. As soon as he's done with his story, they look at each other. And they make an excuse to leave. Like, look, well, we got to we got to leave. We flew in, flew in on, on an army transport. Uh, you know, we need to get this plane back to an air show the next day. Supposedly, it was the the a ceremony for Air Force Day for the Air Force separating from the army at that time. They were becoming a separate entity, and they did in 1947. And they they used this as an excuse to leave. The, the feeling you get from this is that these two guys picked something up in Christmas narrative that didn't make sense to them or that they felt was very suspicious. You know what's suspicious? That is the weight that the advertisers have to endure (laughs) at this point. We have Kurt Sutherland with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. So here's what happened. I was placing an order online. 
The site went down. It just stopped responding. It took hours before it returned, but I'd already placed the order with another company. If your site goes down, you could lose business. And if you have a business or personal site, you'll want to know it's easy to run and it will stay online. At iWeb, your site is hosted on one of the most reliable networks in the world. Check it out. iWeb.com. That's iWeb.com. You expect professional service from your doctor, your accountant, and even the girl who takes your morning coffee order. Why not from your domain registrar, too? Namecheap.com provides stellar service with no sneaky upselling. We offer more features and security options for your website than there are ways to order a latte. And new domains come with a WhoisGuard to protect your personal info. At Namecheap.com, you can get your domain for as low as $2.99. Now is a great time to get to know Namecheap.com. Did you know that how well your brain works is directly dependent upon how well your gut works? Did you know that an inflamed or compromised digestive system directly contributes to poor focus, depression, irritability, attention deficit, and hyperactivity? By eliminating the inflammation in your intestines and by having good bacteria populations, you may enjoy better brain function. The most important protein your body needs to keep inflammation down is glutathione. The number one food to support a dramatic increase in glutathione production is undamaged whey protein from grass-fed cows. Virtually all whey proteins are damaged by heat, filtration, and chemicals, except one. One World Whey is the most life-giving whey protein on the market. It is changing the lives of its users in very positive ways. One World Whey may act as one of the most important health foods to support your and your child's optimal brain function. Call 888-988-3325. That's 888-988-3325. Or visit OneWorldWay.com. That's OneWorldWhey.com. Would it save you time to get the best quality water filters and the best quality storable foods from one company? You bet it would, and now you can at BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com. Big Berkey water filter products and great-tasting, long-lasting, storable, wise foods are both now available on one website, BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com. Wise foods, ready-to-eat meals are packed in airtight nitrogen pouches and come with a 25-year shelf life. Big Berkey water filters are powerful enough to purify treated, untreated, or even stagnant pond water. Combine Berkey water filters with wise foods for an unbeatable preparedness combination. Get free shipping on every order over $50. And GCN listeners receive 5% off all ceramic filter systems. Visit big, B-E-R-K-E-Y, waterfilters.com or call 877-99-BERKEY. That's 877-99-BERKEY. Or go to bigberkeywaterfilters.com. What if pain could be reduced, ailments could be alleviated, physical and mental stress could be eased, and blood circulation increased, all by simply lying down? Introducing the original Biomat. The Biomat is an FDA-registered medical device that combines deep, penetrating infrared space-age technology and revitalizing negative ions with the incredible healing power of amethyst crystals. A Biomat can boost your immune system, relieve pain and stiffness, reduce stress and fatigue, and assist in detoxifying your body. Join the thousands of people reporting relief from chronic pain, fibromyalgia, arthritis, sports injuries, insomnia, and much more. Each Biomat comes with a lifetime trade-in and three-year warranty. Learn more at Bio. Mats.com, spelled B I O M A T S.com, or call 360 944 8692. That's 360 944 8692. Visit bio Mats.com today and enhance your life with a biomat. 
We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And if you'd like to catch up on past episodes, we have hundreds of shows for you to download direct from theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Or check us out at iTunes. We have Kurt Suffley with Gene and Chris and the Paracast retracing the incredible Maury Island incident and what happened. All this byplay that reads almost like a spy novel, doesn't it? Other than that, even. Yeah, like something out of the X-Files. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, Chris Carter, the creator of the X-Files, could have used this as a template for the whole series. Maybe he did. (laughs) We were talking about the the fact that the the two Army officers left after listening to Chrisman give his rendition for the the UFO sighting that he and Dahl supposedly experienced, or actually the the two separate sightings. Anyway, they, 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 they seemed to pick up on something in Christmas story that didn't make sense or that they didn't believe so they, they decided okay we're leaving they didn't do you know what that factor is does the book go into it no no oh. and Arnold Arnold himself didn't know I asked him about this and he said that the only thing they would say was look we can't stick around we have to get our plane back to the to the airfield because tomorrow is Air Force Day we needed this part of a celebration which didn't make any sense I mean yeah, but they be- did they did take the box of flag with them Yes, they did. Well, and they only took that because Chrisman forced it on them. He basically, I think it was like a couple of boxes. He basically said, "Look, you know, before you guys take off, I want you to take this stuff with you." And he kind of forced them to take it along. Anyway, they got in the they got in their uh, their plane. It was a, uh, an old bomber, and uh, and flew out of there. And the next day, this it was Paul Lance was the name of this reporter. Lance writes this story. Uh, they get up. There's a, a story in in the local paper about this army plane exploding or crashing and these guys dying in it. And he identifies the two army corps officers, even though the military had not yet released their identity. And later he said he got it from a mysterious informant who called the newspaper office. Now understand here in normal practice, I don't know if this was in effect then, but now you don't disclose the names of the deceased in some kind of accident until number one, their family has been notified officially. So in a case here, he kind of jumped the gun, huh? Yeah. Well, at the time, you know, reporters could do that kind of thing and get away with it. He had a, a source, even though it was an anonymous source, and he, re- he really didn't care. He just thought this is a great story. Uh, his editor obviously approved it, and they ran it. It, went, it ran headline front page. They cited the mysterious informant as saying that the plane may have been shot down by gunfire. Now, it was that all subsequent investigation by the military I guess they disclosed that it was a uh, an exhaust stack on on one of the uh, one of the engines caught fire. Basically, ended up tearing the entire wing off the aircraft, and the plane crashed. There were uh, two Army Air Corps pilot and the officers. I guess they were flying as pilot and co-pilot, and there were two passengers on board the plane. There was a tech sergeant, if I remember correctly, and a sergeant who those two they parachuted out of the aircraft. Now the the youngest of the of the four, the sergeant, was a hitchhiker. He was flying. Uh, he was getting a, a free shuttle service by the military from one point to another on board this aircraft. They got out. They parachuted to safety. 
the two army officers apparently didn't even attempt to parachute out. And that's a big question mark today yet. Why didn't these guys try to get out of that aircraft? From what I understand, in 2007, uh, investigators went back and recombed that location, and they were able to find some bits of debris from the aircraft. Yeah, that was the UFO hunters. Yeah, I think that was their, their uh, pilot episode. Yeah, but the uh, from what I understand, the initial investigation of the uh, the crash, I guess they removed most of the debris, and I guess if there was any any fragments from this alleged UFO on board, that was taken away during the initial investigation. But in any case, you have all of this. You know, these two guys dead. Arnold and Smith are in the office. Dahl has disappeared. He doesn't. He, he's he's gone. Uh, Chrisman supposedly gets recalled to military duty and is sent off to Alaska. Uh, meanwhile, Ted Morello, the UPI reporter, is telling uh, telling Arnold, look, I'm, I'm trying, he's saying, I'm trying to get to the bottom of this. I'm using all my network of, of sources and informants to try to find out who, what's going on here, who the mystery informant is. I'm getting nowhere. If I were you, I'd leave town. So finally, they decide, okay, we're going to get out of town. Arnold decides he wants to say goodbye to Dahl. So now I have to back up on something. Earlier, uh, a couple of days earlier, they'd been they were in town for like three, four days during this whole scenario. When Dahl first talked to Arnold, he he wanted to I don't know what he wanted to show him. But he said he suggested that Arnold come out to a house occupied by his secretary. Uh, this was supposedly in you know one of the more rundown areas of town. And anyway, Arnold got in the car. They drove over to this place, and he said it was like a nineteen a house from like a nineteen twelve, nineteen seventeen era, something like that. A beat up place, uh, furnished with odds and ends of, of furniture. Uh, there was a woman woman working there, and I guess she was supposedly the secretary for their their lumber mill uh, scavenging uh, operation. And. Uh, I'm not sure what it was Dahl wanted to show him at that time, but Arnold was there. He took a careful look around. He decided the place looked like he was ready to fall apart. Later, when he decided he wanted to say, when they were before he left, he told Smith, he said, I want to say goodbye to Dahl. He said, he, he, for some reason, I guess he, he trusted him more than he trusted Chrisman. He, he, he sort of liked the guy, even though he, he was kind of leery him at, at the same time. He drove out to the house, and the place was empty. And not only was it empty, there were cobwebs all over the place. It looked, he said later, it looked like it had not been lived in for three months. There was not a stick of furniture in the place. There was nobody there. The door was standing ajar when he drove up. Okay, this is the address then that Dahl had given to him. Yeah, this okay. was the place. This but he never visited there. it before. Actually, he did, yeah. He had gone out there with him. He had At that time, before. it didn't look like it hadn't been occupied in it three was, months. It was decrepit, but it was furnished, and it was clean. Okay. And now, all of a sudden, a couple of days later, the place is completely empty and covered with cobwebs and dirt, like it had not been inhabited for months. Like he went into a time warp. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, I mean, this is one of the freakier things of this whole whole episode. I mean... Hey, Arnold couldn't explain it. Nobody's been able to explain it. Most, you know, most people don't even acknowledge that this is part of the scenario. This is just something that is so out there that it's better off. Most people figure it's better off just ignoring it than to try to uh, fit it into the the rest of the scenario, even though the rest of the scenario is strange enough. Now, the strange enough thing happened, and let's kind of move the narrative along here. And that is, when Arnold left, he ran into a problem with his plane. Yes, he did. 
He landed at a small airport about halfway home. He, he needed to stop for fuel. When he went to take off, the engine seized up. He, he, he was only a couple of hundred feet in the air. The engine seized up, shut off, and he was able to affect a, a fairly safe crash landing. I guess one of his landing struts was damaged, but other than that, he was okay. And he was able to repair the aircraft fairly quickly and get on home. He said, when I asked him about this, he said his fuel switch was shut off. How this happened, he doesn't know. Now, the fuel switch is something turned on manually. Yes, it was a, it was a manual switch. So subconsciously, he would have had to have turned off that switch for this to have happened. And we'll get into more details of this in a moment. We have Kurt Southerly with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. So you're a maker of something. Woodcrafts, fishing lures, glass designs, jewelry, purses, perfumes, goat's milk soap. Whatever it is, you made it here in America. Now you're eager for people to buy your products right here locally. Instead of buying competing products made on the other side of the world, right? Then you need to check out localmakers.com. Support America. Buy and sell locally at localmakers.com. Doesn't matter if you're a home-based business or a major manufacturer. Localmakers.com offers an easy way to connect with customers within your local community as well as across the U.S., simply by entering a zip code and there's no cost to join so if you're a maker who needs buyers go to localmakers.com and stock your products on one of our shelves localmakers.com promoting preserving and supporting your neighbors manufacturing businesses Digestive health is the key to wellness and elimination of toxins. That bears repeating. Digestive health is the key to wellness and elimination of toxins. And Pro-EM-1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse is the key to digestive health. Pro-EM-1 is a powerful liquid probiotic, strong enough to cleanse, gentle enough to use every day. Pro-EM-1 is dairy, wheat, and soy-free, contains all natural and certified organic ingredients, contains no preservatives or animal products, supports a healthy digestive and immune system, supports weight loss, improves absorption of food nutrients, aids in controlling yeast infections, is never freeze-dried, and uses three groups of live, viable, beneficial microbes to cleanse and remove toxins. Order Pro-EM-1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse at Terraganics.com, spelled T-E-R-A-G-A-N-I-X.com, Terraganics.com. Or call toll-free 866-369-3678. That's 866-369-3678. Pro-EM1, the raw probiotic. 
What you're about to hear will help you remember where to find the best water filter products at the best prices on the web. There. Did you hear it? BerkeyShop.com. With the newest Berkey products in stock, the best prices on Berkey products anywhere, fast free shipping, and the most amazing customer service. BerkeyShop.com. Home of all Berkey water filter products like the Big Berkey for producing clean drinking water by removing contaminants, chemicals, heavy metals, and even fluoride. Call 1-888-6-BERKEY to get your Berkey water filter. Perfect for home, travel, camping, or disasters. And BerkeyShop.com is the perfect site to get your Berkey because we're open 24-7 with free shipping and no sales tax. Even celebrities and NFL athletes shop at BerkeyShop.com. Call 1-888-6-BERKEY to order your Berkey products. That's 888-6-BERKEY or go to BerkeyShop.com. 888-6-BERKEY or go to BerkeyShop.com. For everything Berkey, shop BerkeyShop.com. Hi, my name is Richard Dolan. You're listening to the Paracast. With Gene, with Chris, we have Kurt Southerly trying to remember the strange mystery of Maury Island and Kenneth Arnold's participation. So that's the point to bring up over and over again. We have an experienced pilot, and I assume then that the plane doesn't take off unless you turn on the fuel switch. Exactly. I mean, you need to you need to hit the fuel switch in order to, to fire up the engine, and obviously he did this. The engine fired up. Uh, he had just filled up the, the fuel tank, and he flew out of there, and it shut off. And he didn't realize until later that the fuel switch was turned off again. And he doesn't know how this happened. He doesn't have any recollection of having done it himself. It, it, it's just another one of these bizarre things that occurred. And anyway, he was he, he was he landed safely, took care of what minor repairs needed to be taken care of, and flew on home. And pretty much tried to put the whole episode behind him. He uh, conferred some with with Ray Palmer. And to tell you the truth, I don't I don't think he ever actually did put together a detailed report on all of this for Palmer. Well, actually, they did the collaboration with the the coming of the saucers, because it was included in their book. But he never actually did a, a an article for the magazine. Did he ever have a subsequent comment about what's in the book, or just affirm what he wrote there? Uh, when I when I talked to him, he just he, he just reiterated several times, like, "Look, this stuff happened. You know, you can believe it or you cannot believe it. You know, I'm sick of reporters dogging me. In fact, when I when I talked to him, the only way I was able to actually get him to agree to to talk to me at all was simply by kind of making him aware that that I was sympathetic to what he had experienced and that that I was also an aviation enthusiast." In fact, about the first five or ten minutes of the phone conversation, we just discussed aircraft and aviation. I had been a crew chief in the Air Force on fighter aircraft. When I was a kid, I lived a quarter of a mile from an airport. I used to beg uh, rides from pilots and Cessnas and Piper Cubs all the time. And when I brought this to his attention, his, his attitude before that was kind of like, why should I even talk to you? You're just another reporter. I hang up on reporters. I'm sick of reporters. All they do is hound me. They pretty much said that. And that's when I explained to him, I said, look, I said, I've I've read your book, and I'm sympathetic to what you must have gone through, and I'd love to hear more. And then we talked. Basically, he just restated pretty much everything that he had stated in the book. And he said, I'm at the point in my life, he said, where I just don't, he said, I don't really think about it a whole lot. He said, it's it's history. He said, it was strange. 
and I asked him about Smith. I said, you still keep in touch? And he said they had up to that point. And this was back in, it was in 1975 or 76 when I interviewed him. Okay, so we're talking at a time here where he was in his mid to late 60s. Yeah, and uh, at the time, I guess, uh, Smith had retired as an airline pilot, and he had been invited to... Uh, his retirement ceremony, but something there was some kind of conflicting conflicting schedule, and he couldn't make it. Um, and he just, you know, pretty much the I guess at that point that was pretty much the last they had been in touch with one another. But there, the fact that Smith kept disappearing with Chrisman, uh, that somebody was informing the local media, the local press, as to what was going on in the room, that they couldn't find any bugging devices. It almost it almost points a finger at Smith. Now, did way. Arnold ever feel that Smith had betrayed him? No, he didn't. He liked Smith. I mean, he liked the man immensely, and I, in, in all honesty, I don't think he would have admitted that had, it, had he even suspected it. He liked the man too much. He, he told me, he said, from the moment I met this guy, he said he was just a, a very, very likable man. They just, they immediately bonded. They were they were like personalities. They had the same kind of sense of humor. Uh, of course, they were both pilots. They should, they had many things in common. And it was just it was just one of those happy friendships that that, that the man fell into at that point in time. Unfortunately, maybe maybe it wasn't just a happy friendship. Maybe he was set up. Nobody, nobody really knows. But he didn't want to think that. He wanted to take the innocent viewpoint, which is, this is my friend, and that's it. Did he ever try to speculate about yeah. what Chrisman and Smith were talking about during their absences? No, he, he never really did speculate about that. He, I don't think he wanted to speculate about it. He didn't want to think badly of Smith. And even, even if Smith had been going off to confer with Chrisman, and he, even if he was the informant, the mystery man, filling the media on what was going on, I mean, what was Arnold going to do about it? I do know one thing. One of the things that, that Arnold brought up, and I think he mentioned this in his book as well, uh, his buddy Colonel Wheland had given him a, uh, a 32 caliber revolver to carry with him for personal protection. Again, this is during a, during a different era when you didn't need, uh, you know, a permit to carry a concealed firearm. Uh, he just simply carried it, and he had it with him in the hotel room. And when Smith discovered he had a gun on him, he was kind of aghast at this. I, I think it I think it actually stunned him and, and Arnold admitted that. He said it was like, like Smith was totally dumbfounded that it was carrying a gun. He didn't make any 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 further bones about it. But the fact that he found out this this guy that he had, had hooked up with in a room was carrying a gun kind of shocked him and I guess he really didn't know what to do about that. So but there were there were so many little elements to this whole thing and it just it really does uh, smack of something out of the X-Files. Oh, there was one other thing, too. When Before they left, before Arnold and Smith left town, before Chrisman and Dahl kind of disappeared, uh, and I guess I guess Dahl was later located sitting in a movie theater uh, at the end of all of this. He, he used to go to this particular theater all the time, and after Arnold had gone to this house that turned out to be empty, he later found Dahl in a movie in this movie theater and Dahl just basically said, Let me alone. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with this anymore. I don't want to be bothered with it. Dahl's voice supposedly had had run off and there was an FBI report that was uh, later released under the Freedom of Information Act and according to the FBI report, the the boy I guess was found in Montana or someplace. Now there were reports that the boy had suffered from amnesia. And the thing I wonder about here is the strange things that went on being 
basically they have eavesdropping going on. You have the house, which suddenly is changed. It kind of smells a little bit like some kind of crazy intelligence operation where somebody it, was playing a game. It exactly does. And, and there, was a, there was a major sander that was brought into this by Smith. This was when Smith disappeared at one point. He later, he actually admitted that he had contacted somebody else in Army intelligence. And it was this major sander who showed up. I guess it was on the day that Smith and, and, uh, and Arnold decided to get out of town after they'd been warned repeatedly they should get out of town. Sander took them to a, a smelting plant outside of the city. And he had bad, bad samples. They still had a few samples of this material that Christman had brought in. And Sander, had, he took them to this smelting plant. And Arnold later said that there were piles of slag, slag-like material laying all over the place. Sander took them up to one particular pile, which looked very much like the stuff that Christman had. And Arnold smelled a rat. He wanted to look at some of the other sample piles that were laying around, and Sander got him out of there. He wouldn't let him look at anything else. He just they hustled. I guess they were in a, actually in a military car. He hustled them back into the car, and they left. Now, I have to ask you a question here as we go along here. And that is, there was a dust-up, or at least a one-side dust-up, between Ray Palmer and Edward Ruppelt. Because in the book, the report on unidentified flying objects by Edward Ruppelt, he talked of Maury Allen as a hoax and, in a sense, implicated Palmer as someone responsible for this hoax. Did Arnold have any feelings or mention anything about Ruppelt? No, no, he didn't. He didn't mention Ruppelt at all, and he didn't, he didn't think that Palmer was anything maybe more than a dupe, that he was simply duped by the letter that Chrisman uh, initially sent him, and Chrisman pretty much admitted to the FBI uh, there, when there was, a, I guess the, the the Fed sat down, local agents sat down, interviewed both Dahl and Chrisman separately, and they they kind of said, or I should say, Chrisman said to the agent, he said, "Look, he said I tailored the letter to what I thought this guy Palmer would want to hear. You know, he knew Palmer was into flying saucers, UFOs, strange phenomena. So he's trying and, to pull uh, one over on Ray Palmer." That's what it sounded like, and that Ew. that was the sense that the FBI agent had, had gotten out of this too. That that this was the, the they basically used Palmer as a way to further whatever objective they had in mind. Okay, we'll have to look question. into that objective and where it might have gone, or is going, or has gone. Wherever you want to say about it, with Kurt Southerly and Gene and Chris, you're in the Paracast. <laughs> The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. G-C-N. Great talk radio starts here. Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs. Convert from so many formats, I can't even list them. Download now to 
see if Graphic Converter is good for you, like one and a half million other users. Guess what? You could save money when you buy Graphic Converter. Use the coupon code NIGHTOWL. Use the coupon code NIGHTOWL to get a special price for Graphic Converter. Go to LemkeSoft.com. That's L-E-M-K-E Soft.com. LemkeSoft.com. L-E-M-K-E Soft.com. Are you having trouble paying your mortgage? Maybe your mortgage loan is upside down or in foreclosure. Maybe the bank already foreclosed on you. Don't sit around being a victim of bank fraud. Fight back. We have the tools to help you fight back. Here's how. Go to InspectorAudit.com and click on the GCN radio special. Order a summary audit. Find the real truth about your loan. Maybe like me, you'll find your bank loan was paid off already. Maybe, like me, you'll find your bank defrauded you at the closing. And maybe, like me, you will go after them. Did you know 78% of home loans in the last 10 years violated consumer credit laws? We should not let the banks get away with this fraud. Go to InspectorAudit.com and click on the GCN radio special. Order a summary audit today and find the truth about your mortgage loan. That's InspectorAudit.com or call 855-373-4948. That's 1-855-373-4948. That's what it sounds like when a burglar kicks in the door of a dark house that looks like no one is home. Don't let your home be the next target. Make it look like someone is home watching television with Fake TV. Fake TV is a small electronic device that makes the same light as a real television. So from outside, it looks like someone is home watching TV. Fake TV plugs in just like a lamp on a timer, but is far more convincing to burglars. Fake TV deters burglars, costs far less than an alarm, and is highly recommended by numerous police departments. Use it anytime you're away from home. To order your Fake TV for only $34.95, go to faketv.com. Or call 1-877-5-FAKE-TV. Each additional fake TV is only $29.95. So get one for you and one for a loved one for safety, security, and peace of mind for both of you. Call 877-5-FAKE-TV or go to faketv.com. FakeTV.com, the burglar deterrent. Iodine protection packs from HempUSA.org are now in stock for immediate delivery worldwide. Our iodine protection packs include micro plant powder, green life kelp, red palm oil, and our clear roll-on iodine that will feed the body the iodine it needs. All iodine protection packs are in stock, save you money, and ship for free in all 50 states. Visit HempUSA.org or call 908-691-2608 today. HempUSA.org has a revolutionary wonder food for detoxing the body and rebuilding the immune system. Microplant powder can help unclog arteries and soften heart valves while removing heavy metals, virus, fungus, bacteria, and parasites. Plus, it cleans and purifies the blood, lungs, stomach, and colon. Keep your body clean with microplant powder. Visit us at HempUSA.org or call 908-691-2608 today. This is Jerome Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're listening to the Paracast. So was Maury Island really an insidious hoax that unfortunately resulted in the deaths of a couple of people and might have claimed a third had Arnold not made that crash landing. We have Kurt Southerly with Gene and Chris trying to sort out this mystery. 
So in retrospect here, who was Fred Lee Christman? I mean, this guy shows up allegedly as a possible suspect or person of interest in the Kennedy assassination. He had a talk show. You know, even passing Arnold, and we'll get on to Crispin in a moment. So Arnold basically tells you in your conversation, everything in that book is it. He doesn't have much more to add. Now, Arnold himself, he, I guess, was sort of a UFO investigator for a while. Then he drifted away. He tried to run for lieutenant governor of his home state, and he lost. Maybe because he was the flying saucer candidate? (laughs) That's very possible. Well, with the public, who knows? I would, I would say that probably didn't help his chances any. <laughs> you don't think it would? So now, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> now, as far as Arnold's own reaction, what did he think was responsible for Maury Island and all the things that happened? Did he have a final opinion when you talked to him? What, twenty five, twenty eight years later? He was just completely baffled. Even, even after all those years, he was, he was absolutely baffled by everything that happened. The, the fact that that somebody was contacting the local media, the local press, I should say, because there really wasn't media per se in that time other than radio, uh, that the that Arnold and Chrisman, he, 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 he had this strong feeling that these two guys were up to something, that the story they were giving him was so much BS, but he couldn't prove it. And he really, I, I think deep down, he really was hoping that what they were telling him was the truth because it would have been something to further corroborate his own sighting. Is that why he did this? Because he was hoping to validate what happened to him? I think partly. He didn't He didn't say that, but I got the sense that, yeah, maybe that was partly the, uh, the case. But again, it goes back to the fact that this guy was a true patriot. I mean, let's, if he had not injured his knee uh, early on when he was playing football, I mean, he was he was a world-class athlete in other ways. I mean, this guy could have been Captain America. You know, that's the kind of person he was. You know, you you dig into this guy's background, and I'm sure whatever dossier that the feds may have put together on him, that's probably what what they summed this up as. You know, that this guy is a true blue patriot. He's an American an American spirit. He has nothing but the, the good of the country at heart. And he ends up getting caught up in this, whatever was going on out in Tacoma with, with Fred Christman and Harold Dahl. And... The more you look at it, the more it looks like this was something that that Chrisman uh, orchestrated, maybe at the behest of somebody else. Because there, and you had just touched on this briefly, there are stories that Chrisman may have been some sort of government operative. He was uh, subpoenaed uh, during the uh, the Garrison investigation of the Kennedy assassination, as supposedly he was one of the mysterious tramps that showed up at Dealey Plaza was, I guess, identified in one of the photos as being such. And later he, when he was supposed to have gone off to Alaska, uh, after being reinducted in the military at the end of the whole Mari Island episode, the, the rumors suggest that he didn't go to Alaska. He ended up in Korea. And it, nobody really seems to know exactly where this guy was for a period of time. And then suddenly he ends up back in Tacoma again, he, he takes on the persona of a, of a radio, uh, a late night radio talk show host. I guess John Gold was his name, and he was a real uh, son of a bitch, you know, on the air. And supposedly he was shot at several times, probably because of his abrasive nature on the air. Was he like an early Howard Stern? 
Yeah, yeah, that's the sense you get of this. He was he was very much you're, you're almost your stereotypical uh, Howard Stern kind of character. Shock jock. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But he predated all of these people by a good many years, and he pissed some people off. And supposedly, I think it was John and Kuehl actually dug into that a little bit and said that uh, that Christman was shot at probably because of some comments he made about somebody on the air. But again, there there was so much about this guy that was just strange and vague. And you do get the sense that he was a player, uh, maybe like a mid-level player in some higher game. He was like an early Richard Doty. Yeah. But who, I mean, who exactly he worked for? Was it, Did he work for the CIA? Did he work for, you know, for somebody else? I mean, the FBI, was they, the, the field agent that investigated, he, uh, he put in the report that he was convinced that these two guys were not telling the entire truth about what they what they knew, that they were they were either making something up, or they were just you know they were just not not telling everything. Before we go back to that, let's kind of wrap up with Kenneth Arnold. At the end of his days, and you talked to him a few years before he passed, did he have a final opinion as to what was responsible for UFOs? No, he didn't. He uh, he was not the kind of guy that was going to venture. Uh, an opinion like that. He, he, he said at the time he felt that this had to be some sort of foreign aircraft, and he they kept going back to the idea that this is something that the Russians had manufactured because at that that was at the point in time where the hostilities between our country and the Soviet Union were starting to really emerge. So he didn't think in terms of ET at all. No, he didn't really. Uh, I think I think that was something that was kind of put into his head during the weeks and the months that followed when all of the other sightings began to occur. When people were, they started talking about flying saucers and, and unidentified flying objects. And I guess we also had during that period, uh, the various green fireball sightings that were occurring in the Southwest. Right. So there's a lot of, a lot of really weird things were happening. Was he aware of the Horton brothers, uh, flying wing design that was operational, um, in the uh, mid to late forties? You know, I, I never, I, that's a good question. I never thought to ask him that. But having been a private pilot, a professional pilot in many ways, I'm sure he was. I mean, there were very few pilots during that period that didn't know about the Horton brothers. And for your, for your listeners, uh, the Horton brothers were uh, German innovators who developed uh, the, the original flying wing. They also had a number of other designs that were very, uh, very well in advance of their time. And, uh, the, the I mean there were rumors that they were actually brought back to this country and that they worked worked on the original uh, flying wing that uh, that was developed by by the Air Force or I should say I guess it was actually developed by uh, by Northrop Aviation for the Air Force and uh, yeah because the strange the enough, flying the wing did look a lot like the drawings that uh, were made of the Arnold incident yeah if you and I think if you study the specifications the dimensions are very similar as well. But that whole business with the flying wing, that the uh, the original flying wing that the Air Force was flying, they, they had a number of accidents with that. One pilot uh, was killed, and uh, his uh, when he died, they, they renamed uh, Muroc Airfield in his honor. His, his name, it was a Captain Edwards, and then renamed Muroc Airfield Edwards Air Force Base, or Edwards Field at the time. And But... I guess many years later, when uh, uh, Jim Northrup, I guess his name was, the head of the company, when he was dying, he he said on his deathbed that 
Stuart Symington, who was the Secretary of the Air Force at the time, canceled the flying wing, wing program for no particular reason. It was just, it was all political. And it kind of makes you wonder because they basically, they, they ended up literally destroying virtually every, every flying wing that had been operational. They had built first reciprocating uh, models, or two or three of those. Then I think one or two of them were converted to jet aircraft, and they flew fairly well. And all of that was destroyed until today, until until the 1990s, I should say, when they built the the new B-2, which again is is simply a variation on that design. Again, the dimensions are almost the same. So all of this does trace back kind of to the Horton brothers during World War II. <laughs> now, looking over Arnold, did he ever voice any comments or opinions about Ray Palmer? Because Palmer, of course, had some pretty exotic things to say about UFOs. Now he. Uh, his contact with Palmer was limited. It was simply that that scenario where they ended up, where he ended up going and doing the investigation for Palmer, and then, of course, when they when they got together, and and I, I get the I get the feeling that Palmer pretty much wrote the book, but he just simply wrote it with Arnold's input. So Arnold basically, Arnold may have given him the notes and the information, yeah, maybe the recordings, and Palmer yeah, and wrote. It's kind of like Shaver, kind of like the Shaver mystery, where Ray Palmer wrote all this stuff under the signature of Richard Shaver, but he, of course, just took Shaver's notes, which were very rough. Shaver was not a really a great fiction writer or a great writer in general. I guess he was better in his later years. By the way, there are lots of ways to contact us here at the Paracast. You can write us, news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. You can send us a tweet, the Paracast. What else can we be? The Paracast on Twitter. Or check out our forums, forum.theparacast.com. Once again, that's forum.theparacast.com. Sign up. Get in on all the action. We have Kurt Southerly joining us, Gene and Chris, on The Paracast. America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. Hi, Ted Anderson announcing a great way to listen to radio on the telephone. By calling 760-569-7700, you'll be hearing GCNlive.com programs in seconds. Come to GCNlive.com, find your favorite host's dedicated phone number, and hear them 24-7. You heard me right, every show has a dedicated phone number. Stop by GCNlive.com and bookmark their number today. And again, that's 760-569-7700. We the people grow cotton, weave fabric, engrave ink, embed strips and fibers to protect from counterfeit and carting to a private bank, having it led back at interest, forcing taxes to service debt. This capitalism, or was Jefferson correct when stating a central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army? Ted Anderson, I'm placing a free silver dollar in a book that explains our monetary system. Call for your copy, 800-686-2237. It's time to understand the system. Call 800-686-2237. That's 800-686-2237. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Exploring the original UFO witness of the modern era, Kenneth Arnold, and the strange Maury Island case, and a lot of the other things with Kurt Southerly, with Gene and Chris on the Paracast. Okay, let's just check a couple other things with regard to Arnold. Did he ever see another UFO? Someone asked that question in our forums. 
I don't think he ever did. I think that, that one sighting was pretty much it. Uh, <laughs> probably all he wanted. That's exactly, exactly what I was thinking. He probably didn't want to see anything else after that. And if he had, he probably wouldn't have reported. You know, did he have regrets over reporting that thing? No, he, he didn't have any regrets about reporting it or, or filing the official report with the Air Force. He, uh, again, he felt that this was his duty. This was his responsibility to his country. It, was, it had nothing to do with whether, whether these things were uh, um, some new type of, of aircraft developed by another country or whether they were extraterrestrial or, or whatever. This was something that, regardless of the origin, it was something that he needed to do because it, it was completely outlandish. It was completely strange. It may have been a threat to national security. Nobody knew. So he needed to report all of this. And when he investigated the whole Maury Island thing, I think the motivation there was exactly the same. I think he just, once he started, even though he was panicked half the time, he didn't, he brought in Smith because he felt, literally felt like he was out of his depth with the investigation. He was not a professional investigator. He admitted that repeatedly. He just needed to get to the bottom of this because it could somehow have an impact on national security, on the country that he loved. And the country that he loved up until the day he died, I'm sure. Now, everything about this case, as I'm saying, reeks of some kind of military intervention. And maybe the deaths of those two military officers was just an unfortunate accident. Well, the, according to the official Army Air Force investigation, the crash of the bomber was an accident. The series of events, the, the chronology of the events, it's just, it all just stacked up so strangely. I mean, you had, the, you had these guys going, you know, Arnold goes there, he brings in Smith. They discover the room is being bugged or monitored in some fashion. They can't find a bugging device. Yet the, the, the local press keeps calling them. You have Chrisman and Dahl who are obviously telling a story, maybe a tall tale, that they're, they're, they seem to be trying to force Arnold and Smith into believing or at least Arnold in any case. Well, of course, you can look at the elaborate conspiracy here that they first give this information to Palmer, maybe not even knowing he'd contact Arnold, but maybe a fortuitous circumstance in order to discredit this crazy UFO mystery before it got out of hand. Well, you know, you, just, you brought up an interesting point. I think Arnold was he, he was, he was a pawn. He was a fortuitous pawn in whatever game was being played. And I'm not sure, but I'm not sure that they were trying to discredit the UFO mystery. I think maybe somebody or some agency or agencies saw the whole UFO phenomenon. And I think I think it's still the case today. I think they saw it as a, a way to, to kind of manipulate things to create a smokescreen for other activities. You go back to this business about the slag. Now, supposedly this slag was radioactive, yet there doesn't seem to have been any indication from anybody that was radioactive. That's, that's part of the rumor that flew around about this. This Major Sander takes him to this smelting plant, had, takes him directly to one pile of slag, which looks remarkably like what Chrisman had in his possession. But he doesn't let them look at anything else. He hustles them back into the car and gets them away from the smelting plant, In I guess in opposition to Arnold's objections. He was like, you know, let me look at some of the other stuff. No, we don't have time. Let's leave. That's kind of what went on there. It's the whole thing smacks of some sort of game that was being played and it even today it's just baffling it's completely baffling what was going on did this have something to do with the early atomic energy commission you know nobody really seems to know well it's almost as if you look into a lot of the stuff going on in the early days of the ufo field you find all these curious military connections oh yeah yeah <laughs> 
yeah, they were all over the place for a while. And, and this, I don't know. I mean, unfortunately, we're we're so far removed from that era now. I mean, we're you know we're now in 2012, and we're talking 1947, 1948 time frame. And just like with Roswell, I mean, you can you can look at that, you can you can investigate until you go berserk, and you never can quite pin anything down. I mean, the sense is that something happened. And that, in fact, it's kind of interesting because the whole Roswell scenario occurred shortly after the Kenneth Arnold sighting and right around the time of the Maury Island business. So you have all of these events in play. And you have the military first releasing a report saying that the Roswell thing was a crash-flying saucer, a crash-flying disc. And then they immediately recant. And you get a story that this was a high-weather balloon. And it just smacks of almost like a double cover-up. Like, they they threw out one thing, then they threw out something else. And by the time they were finished, people were so confused, they didn't know what... And that's the sense you get in Maury Island, too. Well, not that, to denigrate the possibility of UFO reality, but you have to wonder if UFOs were not occasionally used as an excuse to cover up something else that was going on. Oh, tell them it's a flying saucer. We're not going to let them know about our secret weapons studies or secret aircraft, the things we're doing with those scientists that came from Nazi Germany. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, the the whole UFO mystery, the whole flying saucer mystery, as it exploded in 1947, would have been viewed by, I think, people in, in the right places as a way to obscure the truth about other things they've been working on, as you suggest. And I think that was—I think that's been the case down through the years. I think in many instances we've had uh, episodes where people have investigated flying saucer or UFO phenomena, and maybe it was really something else that occurred, or maybe maybe that was maybe there was something staged to distract attention from something else that might have been happening nearby. Uh, you, you know, again, you don't know. We can we can only speculate and. It seems like the, the people that really do start digging into these things either tend to clam up after a while or they just simply disappear. <laughs> well, Kurt, no, I, I do remember reading that Arnold really became a celebrity after this, and it, and it in, in, impacted his business. And at one point, I think he said uh, if he saw like a 10-story building <laughs> flying through the air, he'd never say a word about it because it, it seems like it, you know on his routes that he would fly uh, between cities, People would find out that he was going to arrive, and he would attract these these huge crowds. And the notoriety must have been quite a uh, quite disconcerting for him. Did did he ever mention uh, any regrets about all this? No, he the the only regret he he uh, posed was to say that he just simply didn't talk to people about it anymore. That's when when I talked to him on the phone, that was he immediately tried to brush me off when he's like, "Well, who are you?" <laughs> And I identified myself as a freelance writer and said I was I wanted to talk to him about this because it was the anniversary of his sighting and uh, I'm just very fortunate he didn't hang up on me because that was his inclination and that's when I kind of segued into the whole uh, aviation enthusiasm thing and we talked aircraft for a few minutes and he relaxed enough to realize I was not trying to I was not calling him to simply harass him or to to write some story that would have uh, you know, been offensive to him. I mean, he he had put up with enough of that over the years from different, not just from the media, but I think from the, the public. It's it's with any as with any celebrity. I mean, if you if you gain some notoriety, 
and you go sit down in a restaurant or someplace, and I'm sure the man probably would want to take his wife out every once in a while, and people would recognize him, and they'd want to talk about the flying saucer sighting. That would have been a natural inclination on people that surrounded him, except maybe the people in his immediate environment who might have actually worked to protect him. But anybody that knew him only casually or didn't know him but recognized him from photos would have, would have hounded the guy. So, yeah, I'm sure he, was, he would have been burned out by it. What was kind of funny was I think my, my interview with him, uh, it was published in a short version, first in, in the uh, Lebanon Daily News where I was working part-time, and then a longer version ended up in Saga Magazine or Saga's UFO Report. Once that came out, then people started, investigators started to approach Arnold again about, uh, about his story and about going to conventions. And I believe, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, it was a couple of years later that he ended up becoming the keynote speaker at one of the large UFO conferences. And Gene, you might remember more of that than I do. Well, this was the International UFO Congress, which, of course, is the predecessor of the one that we were at just a couple of weeks back, Chris and I. So isn't that amazing? We have Kurt Southerly joining Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. We also have swag. You know, we have all these exclusive Paracast things that you can buy. We've got like, I guess, 60 or so different items and entails T-shirts, sleeves for notebook computers, iPad cases, mouse pads, the Paracast Jumbo tote bag, all sorts of T-shirts and jackets and stuff like that for men and women. We have a Paracast aluminum water bottle. All this stuff, you go to store.theparacast.com, store.theparacast.com. What makes it special is that the items are the best quality, you know, great T-shirts, fabrics, and they have our official logo on them. That's what makes them special in multiple sizes and colors. We even have stuff for children, stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the Paracast. If you go to store.theparacast.com, stop by and take a shopping tour. We all know that Berkey Water Purification Systems are the most trusted name in water filtration. As an authorized Berkey dealer for over six years and serving thousands of satisfied customers, the Berkey Guy offers amazing specials for Berkey Water Filtration Systems. The Berkey Light Systems include a set of self-sterilizing and recleanable black purification elements that purify water by removing chlorine, pathogenic bacteria, cysts and parasites to non-detectable levels and remove harmful chemicals such as herbicides and pesticides. Order the Berkey Light System today, complete with two black Berkey elements for only $231, and the Berkey Guy will ship your order free of charge. With the purchase of a Berkey Light, the Berkey Guy is also offering a set of fluoride and arsenic filters for only $39.99. That's over 30% off the retail price. Call the Berkey Guy at 1 886 3653. That's 1 886 3653. Or order online at goberkey.com. That's goberkey.com today. What is the most abundant resource on Earth? Water. It's essential for sustaining life. 
but it's not always the most available. When disaster strikes, water quickly vanishes from store shelves, like it did during 9-11, Katrina, Japan, and in Joplin. Three days without water and your body begins to shut down. Don't risk being without an abundant supply of water when the next disaster hits. Get a FlowJack hand well pump. The affordable FlowJack drops right into almost any well and is easy to install without having to remove the existing pump, giving you immediate access to plenty of cool, clean water. You could risk your family's health on a limited supply of stored water, or you could be prepared with the reliable, affordable FlowJack backup hand pump kit. Delivered to your door for only $3.99 complete. See how it works at FlowJack.com. Spelled F-L-O-J-A-K.com. Be sure to spell F-L-O-J-A-K.com or call 855-4-FLOWJACK. That's 855-435-6525. Proudly made in America. FlowJack hand well pumps. Peace of mind in a box. Don't answer it. If fear strikes your heart when the phone rings, knowing it may be another bill collector, it's time for you to call Zero Debt in 90 Days, 800-477-9256. Settlements, bankruptcy, and attorneys are not the answer and may end up costing you up to 10 times more than necessary. Listen, if you're already in debt, does it make sense to get buried in another payment plan? Zero Debt in 90 Days gets you out of debt in 90 days guaranteed without a payment plan and without attorneys or going to court. Get the fastest relief from debt on the planet when you call 800-477-9256. If you have debt with the IRS, credit cards, student loans, or a foreclosure, we can help at zero debt in 90 days, and we are the only organization to provide written guarantees on the results. Go to ZeroDebtGuaranteed.com. That's ZeroDebtGuaranteed.com. Or call now for free information, 800-477-9256. That's 800-477-9256. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And if you'd like to catch up on past episodes, we have hundreds of shows for you to download direct from theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Or check us out at iTunes. We have Kurt Southerly exploring Kenneth Arnold and all the strange things going on in the early UFO field in the 1940s and 1950s. Now, at one time, Jim Mosley tried to get Kenneth Arnold to speak. This was at a national UFO conference meeting for, I think, 1967. And Arnold agreed, but supposedly Arnold had moved to Australia for several years. <laughs> or at least that's supposedly what they claimed. Is that true? Well, I'm I'm laughing at that because, and I don't know if you remember this, but when I first started looking for Arnold, I asked around, and you're one of the people that I contacted inquiring as to Arnold's whereabouts. Right, and, and I probably said Australia. That, that's exactly what you said, and I'm like, what? And and you know, I thought that doesn't sound likely, but you know, I didn't know, so I made some other inquiries, and people were telling me that he was dead, and then I simply picked up the phone book. Well, actually, I didn't pick up the phone book. I just simply picked up the telephone, called directory assistance. For Idaho, and I got his phone number, and he was still living at the old old home in, in his home state of Idaho. So that's where the conversation started. In fact, I think I mentioned to him on the phone, I said, you know, you're supposed to be dead, and he started chuckling. <laughs> but I do remember that. I remember you telling that he was in Australia. Maybe that was a cover story just to get everybody off his back. So that was your cover story. You're saying that you were, you were privy to... No, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I think also, as a matter of fact, that year they tried to get Ray Palmer to come to New York 
to go to the National UFO Conference and understand Ray was crippled. He, yep. yeah, he had a severe well. spinal condition. He was basically a hunchback. Very short, very difficult for him to walk. I guess he could drive around in a car. But I know when I met him in the 60s, when I met Ray Palmer, he walked slowly and haltingly. You know, he wasn't all that healthy. And he died, I think, about a decade later in his middle late 60s, which I guess wasn't unusual for that era. But that's where you when, go with Kenneth Arnold. So when here's. When you talked to Palmer, did he mention anything about Kenneth Arnold? I didn't ask him. I only talked to Palmer a few times. And the thing is here, with Ray Palmer, you don't think so much as Kenneth Arnold. You don't think so much of Maury Island or the book The Coming of the Saucers. You think about Richard Shaver, the guy who said he'd been down there to the inside the, the caverns yeah. to meet the Deros and Tiros and his connection, all the stories he told. Now, very interesting about Ray Palmer. Ray Palmer, of course, I always wondered about him. He seemed pretty straight, pretty straight arrow with me. And then I met a former colleague of his, Otto Bender, famous science fiction author and editor. This was yeah. back in the 60s and 70s. I remember the name, yeah. Right, and Otto said to me, you know, Palmer's a really nice guy, but he's just a storyteller. Don't take anything he says seriously. He just says that for the sake of selling magazines. That his core beliefs may be things that you didn't know about. As much as he said, this is what I believe, he was basically just writing to start the argument or the debate or sell magazines and books. I don't know. Well, he didn't have to make too much up with the, uh, the whole Mari Island thing. <laughs> no, he didn't. He just Chris basically had to take the words and put them together on paper. Yeah. You know, the letter that, that Chrisman sent him when he said they were harbor patrolmen, and, and it turned out they were no such thing. They were simply operating a small salvage craft. And obviously, maybe, who knows, maybe Chrisman sensed that Palmer was a kindred spirit in, insofar as spinning tall tales, and he, he figured, well, this is a good guy to approach with this story, and I can get something started here. But again, that leads back to the what was it he was trying to start? What was it he, he was trying to embellish, and for what reason? Well, Palmer might have been the right person at the wrong time. Remember, this is the time of Fate magazine. This is the time where Palmer had been pretty controversial in the sci-fi field because a lot of the traditional people in the science fiction field basically hated Palmer's guts because of this crazy Shaver story. You know, I mean, Palmer was publishing science fiction stories of the era. This was a magazine that was the original science fiction magazine founded by Hugo Gernsback in the 1920s, the first sci-fi magazine on the planet. Many of the famous science fiction stories originated there. As I mentioned, Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote one or two of the last John Carter stories for Amazing Stories. I did not know that. That is very interesting. It's a part of history. If you look at the final John Carter stories, which were basically short novels, you'd see that they originally were published in Amazing Stories, and the editor at the time was Ray Palmer. So he had this influence and this confluence of events that put him in the early part of the UFO and paranormal research eras. Very strange, Ray Palmer. Almost more interesting in that sense than Kenneth Arnold, who was the victim, whereas Palmer may have been the purveyor, the perpetrator in some ways. Who knows? You know, I think he was he was the medium by which they were able to perpetrate if it was a, a hoax, and it seems like it was a hoax on Maury Island. Well, nowadays I think the general opinion in UFO research is that Kenneth Arnold had some kind of genuine sighting, whatever it might have been, even if it was a some kind of test aircraft, and that Ray Palmer was telling tall tales, and Kenneth Arnold was kind of sucked into a hoax. 
and that was it. Something really crazy was going on in Maury Island. But in the end of the day, it was a bad hoax, a bad hoax because two people died. And maybe then Edward Ruppelt was right, although he blamed Palmer, which wasn't right. Maybe more than two people. Maybe this and Paul Lance, the local reporter, maybe his death had something to do with all this too. And well, supposedly Ted Morello, the UPI reporter, his his career kind of fell apart. I guess his personal life fell apart for a long time after that. Although I understand he was able to kind of resurrect his career many years later uh, as a United Nations reporter of all things. Of course, we have all the crazy legends over the years of premature deaths as a result of being involved in UFO research. You know, we talk about, for example, Morris Jessup, who wrote a book called The Case for the UFO, then The Expanding Case for the UFO, and then supposedly killed himself in Florida some years later after those books came out. Yep. We have Dr. James McDonald, who evidently died of natural causes, but some people say it's not so natural. And then, Chris, as you and I remember during our recording of the PowerCast of two weeks ago at the International UFO Congress, we were talking about... People who suffered from strange cancer infections, virulent cancers, for no reason at the same time with the only connection that they were involved in UFO research. Yeah, yeah I've seen several articles recently about Andrew uh, uh, Breitbart. Is that his name? Andrew Breitbart. Yep. Sure. He was a conservative columnist, activist, mug-raking kind of guy, very controversial, but he died young, but they said he had a heart condition, so maybe not so strange. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting how people that gain a certain controversial notoriety, especially within the UFO realm, uh, Scott Rogo, of course, is another one, how they have these uh, just kind of weird uh, demises. Who was a small-time publisher that he, he put out a lot of trade paperbacks having to do with the black helicopters? I think he also reprinted uh, uh, Keel's book as well. Um, Oh, for crying out loud, his his novel that wasn't a novel. <laughs> Jim Keith is another one that comes to mind. He stumbles uh, on the, going up on this, or coming off the stage of Burning Man and is dead two days later from a, a weird infection or something, I think, in the hospital. This I is something we should explore in our remaining two segments, the strange aftermath of people who get involved in UFO research, those who knew too much. Might Not be the court. Air. Well, not to coin a phrase. With Gene and Chris, we have Kurt Southerly. You're in the Paracast. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs convert from so many formats i can't even list them download now to see if graphic converter is good for you like one and a half million other users guess what you could save money when you buy graphic converter use the coupon code night owl use the coupon code night owl to get a special price for graphic converter go to lemkesoft.com that's l-e-m-k-e soft.com lemkesoft.com l-e-m-k-e soft.com 
Have you ever seen a U.S. postage stamp featuring Abraham Lincoln, Ben Franklin, or George Washington? If you're into stamp collecting, you know it's a fun, affordable hobby. America's leading stamp dealer is the Mystic Stamp Company, and they want you to have their free 140-page color catalog. Go to mysticstampad.com, the website of the Mystic Stamp Company, serving stamp collectors since 1923. Mystic Stamp is well-known in the industry for its experience, superior customer service, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Go to mystic-stamp-ad.com to request your free 140-page U.S. stamp color catalog packed with collecting tips, special offers, color photos, and over 4,600 available stamps. Call 800-433-7811 or go to mysticstampad.com. That's 800-433-7811 and ask for your free U.S. stamp catalog or mysticstampad.com. Mystic Stamp Company, America's leading stamp dealer. Healthy soils grow healthy plants. So before you plant your survival garden this year, is your soil healthy? Maximize your crisis garden soil with EM1 from Terraganics. EM1 organic soil conditioner, fertilizer amendment, and compost accelerant provides healthier gardens and faster, efficient garden composting. EM1 from Terraganics.com quickly improves soil structure by increasing nutrient availability and converting organic matter into soil humus. This improves seed germination and root growth, improves plant quality, size, color, flavor, nutrient value of fruits and vegetables and improves shelf life. And when rain is not in the forecast, no worries. EM1 improves moisture retention in soils, helping reduce drought stress. Just like you prepare all else, prepare your crisis garden for maximum yields with EM1 from Terraganics.com. Order now at T-E-R-A-G-A-N-I-X.com or call toll-free 866-369-3678. That's 866-369-3678. Terraganics. Life's getting better. So you're a maker of something. Woodcrafts, fishing lures, glass designs, jewelry, purses, perfumes, goat's milk soap. Whatever it is, you made it here in America. Now you're eager for people to buy your products right here locally. Instead of buying competing products made on the other side of the world, right? Then you need to check out localmakers.com. Support America. Buy and sell locally at localmakers.com doesn't matter if you're a home-based business or a major manufacturer. Localmakers.com offers an easy way to connect with customers within your local community as well as across the U.S. simply by entering a zip code. And there's no cost to join. So if you're a maker who needs buyers, go to localmakers.com and stock your products on one of our shelves. Localmakers.com. Promoting, preserving, and supporting your neighbor's manufacturing businesses. This is Hilly Rose, and I hope that you do listen to the Paracast because you will learn a great deal about the paranormal. Kurt Southerly joining Gene and Chris in the Paracast, and we've gotten into this story about people involved in UFO research, and they die before their time for whatever reason, maybe because of cancer, brain tumors. Barney Hill, how old was he, what, 50s, early 60s when he died? I believe he was like maybe mid-50s, something like that, yeah. Sure. Yeah, he would be another one. That's <laughs> His wife, Betty, I, I was in touch with her for a good many years. In fact, she used to feed me all kinds of information during the, the 70s and early 80s about UFO activities up in uh, uh, New Hampshire, where she was still living. 
And uh, she, based on the letters that I had received from her, she missed her husband up until the day she died. But that whole scenario with their their sighting and the Fuller's uh, book, The Interrupted Journey, dealing with all of it, I mean, that, that started something that I think she was able to handle a whole lot better than Barney was. He, uh, I don't think he was ever able to really come to grips with what happened or what they thought happened to them, the, the alleged abduction. I don't know. She was my, my sense of, of Betty Hill from a couple of brief phone, uh, phone conversations and from the many letters that I received from her was that she was a very tough-minded woman and that nothing was going to push her into the afterlife any sooner than she needed to go. But, yeah, her husband, I don't think he was, I don't think he could, he really was able to handle it uh, in any real fashion. I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if that didn't have something to do with his early death. Well, is it emotional then, all this, or did he I, I suffer some kind of external infection? People, yeah, I think for all of these people, the emotion, well, I mean, it's, it's pretty pretty well known today that with with illness, your state of mind has a lot to do with your your mental, I mean, your mental health has a lot to do with your physical health. If you have... If you're in poor mental health, if you have a negative attitude about a lot of things, if you're just constantly worrying over things and stressing over things, obviously it's going to put you into poor health, and it can, you know, it can simply push you into into an early death. I think it's why, in a lot of cases, and we're kind of digressing here, but where you have, I'll give you a personal example. My aunt and uncle, uh, Aunt Joanne and Uncle Ron, uh, or, uh, John, uh, John Paul, I should say, the last name is Weatherholtz. He died in his mid-40s of of cancer. It came on very suddenly, very unexpected. They later thought it might have had something to do with radon disease in the house. But he died quickly, and Joanne, within a year, died as well. That's not uncommon, that the spouse doesn't always survive. And we think, of course, of June Carter Cash and Johnny Cash died within months of each other. Yeah, she she literally did not want to live without her husband, without John Paul. They were that close. I used to run around with them a lot. We'd go to to antique places, we'd go to uh, country markets, that kind of thing, and you know. And they were I wasn't that much younger than they were, and so we were instead of them being aunt and uncle, we were like close friends. And when he died, it affected me strongly, and I I saw how it hit my aunt Joanne. I mean, she just it tore her apart. And I've seen this, you know, we're, we're all at this point in life now where. We've had enough experiences like this that you can you kind of see it, and it does it does say a lot about the state of the mind and how it affects your physical health. In the case of Barney Hill, I really think that the, this early episode with this UFO abduction or whatever it was that really happened, this affected him in such a way that I think it it, it pushed him to an early grave. You know, I think a man probably he might still be alive today had this not happened. It's probably almost like getting bit by a scorpion. Well, we don't want to get into the broad details of that. Now, let me, let's me let look into opinions here. We're talking to you mostly as a journalist here, trying to put pieces together, trying to figure out about Kenneth Arnold's experiences in the UFO field, about what happened. Personally, looking at all this stuff, do you go along with the fact that maybe this Fred Lee Chrisman character was somebody in some way connected with the military and whether with their sanction or without their sanction was doing something he felt they wanted done? I don't think he was connected to the military. I think he was connected to the intelligence community. Uh, a big difference there. I mean, you have, you, have, you have intelligence services within the military, but the feeling I got through, through the conversation with Arnold, and he didn't really get into that a whole lot, uh, and, but 
digging into the various records related to all of this and taking a close look at the principal players, the feeling that I have is that Fred Lee Chrisman was somebody who was involved with the intelligence community, probably as a mid-level operative. He was he was there pushing an agenda for, for whatever agency he was working for, maybe the CIA. The CIA was, was kind of in its infancy at that point. Uh, the, again, the, the, the big question is, what was he doing? What was the whole point of this, of creating this story? Or did he just like to do this kind of thing? Was he just kind of a nut? Maybe he was. Maybe he was both. Maybe he was working for the intelligence community. He was kind of a nut, kind of an oddball. Okay, maybe he was. Maybe he was a uh, uh, kind of a nut. Maybe he was both part of the intelligence community and somebody that would that like that like to uh, throw nonsense out at the you know out into the open and see who would you know who would jump at it. He was an unofficial <laughs> loose cannon then. Yeah, yeah, he probably was, and it kind of goes back to what you were saying about Richard Doty earlier. You know, he, he almost seemed like he fits into that same mold. He was kind of, he was a bit of a loose cannon. I think. Kurt, I have a quick question for you. Yeah. Um, I seem to remember uh, reading Ken Thomas's book about the Maury Island incident. That, that I think he mentions in there that Crispin was allegedly involved in some scheme to uncover. Uh, Japanese gold uh, in the South Pacific in the Philippines or someplace that they thought was buried in a cavern and he was somehow associated with the search for that. Do, are, are, do you have any information on that? <laughs> no, that, that is, that's a new one on me. I mean, I had not heard that story before. So, he, okay, run this by me again. Chrisman supposedly was involved in a, in a search for lost Japanese gold in the South Yeah, for hidden Japanese gold. I... I now, I could be mistaken, but it's been uh, probably seven years, six years since I read the book. But I do seem to recall, yeah, that there was some, uh, there's some, you know, tantalizing hints here and there that uh, that he was involved in some search uh, effort to try to recover this gold after the Japanese. Wow. Were out. Now that that definitely piques my interest. I'm going to have to dig into that a little bit and see if I can find something out. And, Maybe yeah. on a future show we can if I can come up with any we can discuss it. But yeah, I had not heard this before. But again, that actually based on what, what I know of this character through these various stories, that sounds like something that he, he would have been that he would be involved in. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean it, it, who knows? I mean there's there's bound to be tons of, of of uh sunken treasure out there and search for Japanese gold that would not be all that far fetched. Yeah, you know, I'm sure the I'm sure the the CIA or whatever agency he might have been working for would have been really happy to get their hands on something like that. <laughs> yeah, I would think it was probably the OSS back then, that was pre uh, uh, pre uh, you know the National Security Agency and the when, CIA when just, and the, the you know, division of Army Air Force and the Air Force. When did this supposedly take place? Around '49 or something? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I don't remember if it was before. I think it may have been just before. Uh, 46 maybe, uh, or it could have been just after. I'm not sure. Again, the de- I'm a little fuzzy on the details. I'll have to uh, drag out and dust off my copy of uh, of Ken's book. But uh, he did a, a pretty interesting job uh, trying to get more background information on him. He's quite the shadowy character. No, no question about it. Do, do we know what happened to him? What? Uh, how did he finally die? What? What did he do in the 60s and 70s? Do you have any indication? Uh, yeah, he, uh, let me see here, let me dig through my own notes, which are stacked, room. let me see what, I do seem to, 
have something done about or have something down here about his uh, his final demise. Let's and see. as we speak, we have right, Kurt Southerly and showing you what spontaneous radio is all about. Kurt came here with all his notes, probably packed in his living room or his bedroom there at his home I'm, in a I'm secret in my location. Room floor with notes all surrounding me. Okay. So, and uh, okay, yeah, he died in 1975, supposedly of natural causes. And that's as much as I was able to dig up on that. So what they mean by natural causes, I mean, did he just die of old age? Did he die of cancer? Heart How attack? old was he? He had to have been, I'd say, in his 80s by that time. Oh, he yeah. was an old codger. We've got yeah. Kurt Southerly, who's not an old codger, at least not yet, with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. G-C-N. Great talk radio starts here. If you want to get your website online and you need reliable service, first-class service at the lowest possible price, there's only one place to go. Well, DreamHost has a special promotion with our show where they'll offer you unlimited disk space, unlimited bandwidth, one-click web apps such as WordPress, 24-7 support. You can save over $55. You want to know how? Go to DreamHost.com radio, DreamHost.com radio. For 50 Eight years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Are you having trouble paying your mortgage? Maybe your mortgage loan is upside down or in foreclosure. Maybe the bank already foreclosed on you. Don't sit around being a victim of bank fraud. Fight back. We have the tools to help you fight back. Here's how. Go to inspectoraudit.com and click on the GCN radio special. Order a summary audit. Find the real truth about your loan. Maybe like me, you'll find your bank loan was paid off already. Maybe, like me, you'll find your bank defrauded you at the closing. And maybe, like me, you will go after them. Did you know 78% of home loans in the last 10 years violated consumer credit laws? We should not let the banks get away with this fraud. Go to InspectorAudit.com and click on the GCN Radio Special. Order a summary audit today and find the truth about your mortgage loan. That's InspectorAudit.com or call 855-373-4948. That's 1-855-373-4948. That's what it sounds like when a burglar kicks in the door of a dark house that looks like no one is home. Don't let your home be the next target. Make it look like someone is home watching television with Fake TV. Fake TV is a small electronic device that makes the same light as a real television. So from outside, it looks like someone is home watching TV. Fake TV plugs in just like a lamp on a timer, but is far more convincing to burglars. Fake TV deters burglars, costs far less than an alarm, and is highly recommended by numerous police departments. Use it anytime you're away from home. To order your Fake TV for only $34.95, go to FakeTV.com. 
or call 1-877-5-FAKE-TV. Each additional fake TV is only $29.95, so get one for you and one for a loved one for safety, security, and peace of mind for both of you. Call 877-5-FAKE-TV or go to faketv.com. Faketv.com, the burglar deterrent. Iodine protection packs from HempUSA.org are now in stock for immediate delivery worldwide. Our iodine protection packs include micro plant powder, green life kelp, red palm oil, and our clear roll-on iodine that will feed the body the iodine it needs. All iodine protection packs are in stock, save you money, and ship for free in all 50 states. Visit HempUSA.org or call 908-691-2608 today. HempUSA.org has a revolutionary wonder food for detoxing the body and rebuilding the immune system. Microplant powder can help unclog arteries and soften heart valves while removing heavy metals, virus, fungus, bacteria, and parasites. Plus, it cleans and purifies the blood, lungs, stomach, and colon. Keep your body clean with Microplant powder. Visit us at HempUSA.org or call 908-691-2608 today. This is Jerome Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're listening to the Paracast. We have Kurt Southerly for another segment on the Paracast with Gene and Chris, and we're talking about Fredley Chrisman. And as you mentioned, Chrisman must have been, what, in the 60s when Maury Island occurred? Mm, probably. Probably uh, might have been a little younger. I'd say probably in his 50s, late 40s, early 50s when that occurred. Okay. Uh, and you know what? Now that I think about it, Arnold never really did give any indication of, of his age. I got the feeling that Dahl was probably a fair amount younger than Chrisman. And he described Dahl as being kind of, he was like 6'2", lumberjack built, kind of a strapping guy. So you get the sense that he might have been like in his late 20s, early 30s, and Chrisman a good 10 or 15 years older. So that was, well, I'm not sure if Kurt, Kurt's aware of this, but my... My father was in the Coast Guard in Puget Sound uh, in 46 and 47. And I remember a couple of times when we were kids, he would he told us a story. Uh, I remember one time in particular around the dinner table of seeing, getting a new radar unit on their cutter and, um, and detecting objects that seemed to be going in and out of Puget Sound at hypersonic speed. And later on, after I got more involved in this whole field, I remember bouncing that question off him and, and asking him, hey, do you remember when you told us that story? And he totally denied it. <laughs> he, got, <laughs> he, he actually got kind of nervous. And said, well, yeah, I never told you that. <laughs> huh. So, so he, he, was, he was saying that the objects were diving in and out of Puget Sound? They were going in and out of Puget Sound in the Straits of Juan de Fuca, yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's not unheard of in the annals of UFO history either. I mean, you, Ivan Sanders well, uh, yeah. called an uh, undersea, you know, flying objects and uh i mean yeah you have you have that kind of story surfacing all the time of people seeing things and discs of various objects that would simply dive beneath the surface of the ocean at some place or maybe dive into a harbor and uh, not be seen again or maybe they would simply track them i, I guess there were a number of cases keel was, was into this he would he dug in a number of stories where various navies i believe the over in, in Scandinavia, the Navy over there was constantly tracking strange submerged objects moving at high speed with sonar, and they would pursue this. They thought they were, these were Russian submarines, but they never could prove it. 
but in many cases these objects were going too fast to be Russian submarines. And our Navy has, has uh, they've, they're not going to be quick to admit it, but there have been cases where they've tracked various submersibles as well that are moving at high speed. So, I don't know. <laughs> you can you start pulling one one thread and all kinds of other things start to unravel and you've got this whole mess of you know, strange mysteries. And you have to wonder in those days what percentage of UFO cases were really caused by some kind of government experiment. You're talking about back in the 40s? Definitely back in the 40s and early 50s when so many things were being tried, as they say. Either either the things were being tried or the the fact that we were trying things, such as earlier uh, atomic tests, was attracting attention from somewhere. I mean, we you know we talk about all this, and I'm, I'm kind of guilty of this too. I tend tend to be fairly pragmatic, despite my interest in all this stuff. And and I, I look at this, and I think there's a rational explanation for most unexplained phenomena. But when you get to the bottom of it, in some cases, there is no rational explanation other than to assume or to to, to come to the conclusion that we're dealing with something that's either extra-dimensional or extraterrestrial. And for instance, I think of the, the business with the green fireballs in the Southwest in 1947. And they had there were months that went by, uh, actually 1947, 48, I think, all the way into 49, when they, the military set up what they called uh, Project Twinkle. And they were attempting to photograph these objects, but they were never, never having a lot of luck because they'd see these strange, brilliant green meteors in one location, they'd set up their scopes, and these objects would stop appearing in that location and start appearing somewhere else. And it, you get the feeling because of the location, because of the proximity of these objects with some of the nuclear testing that was going on at the time that they were these were objects that were curious about what we were doing. Clat 2 was coming here from wherever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Except he didn't land on the White House lawn or in, the, you know, in Central Park or wherever it was he was supposed to have landed. He just, you know, he, he was just simply flying over and checking things out. But, uh, and of course, there's also the idea that when we started to set off atomic tests, did we create a rift? Did we fracture some sort of a barrier that allowed things to come and go? You know, maybe I don't know. Uh, it, you know, you can speculate all day and all night about these things, and you're kind of left you know, with with a, an empty sheet of paper in your lap. And that may be the other question to ask here. What are we left with the life story of Kenneth Arnold, who got himself accidentally into the UFO mystery because he reported what he saw? And maybe if he shut up, we wouldn't hear about it in the same way. Maybe look at it that way. If Kenneth Arnold had never said, I saw something strange, would the UFO mystery have gotten so much attention? I think it would have. I think it would have taken off with somebody else. But it, it, as it as it happened, he was he was the person that first brought it to the public attention, uh, and it, it was just it was circumstance. I mean, he he happened to see this. Maybe maybe somebody else had the same sighting. Maybe the people he mentioned in uh, in his report that there had been an airliner flying five or six miles behind him to off his port wing. The objects were also in the port side, meaning the left side of the aircraft. Maybe the people in the airliner saw it as well, but they didn't report it. It could have happened the other way. It could have been him, like you said, that kept his mouth shut, and maybe the pilot of that airliner might have reported the sighting, 
and this whole thing would have taken on a different, an entirely different tone. Or nobody would have reported this thing at all. Exactly. I mean, they they might have all kept quiet, but again, then you had uh, you had Smith on July fourth reporting his sighting. But I believe that he and his co-pilot, I think the guy's name was Wendell Stevens, they only reported it because. Arnold had already come forward with his report. So that he opened the door. He's the big door opener for all this stuff. That he made it acceptable to see strange things and report those strange things and maybe not be laughed at or not be laughed at so severely. And you know, his report today is still officially classified as unexplained by the military. That is, it is never, they've never tried to close the door on that. They've never tried. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it's it is still unexplained. They've never tried to come up with some kind of cock and bull story about, you know, about uh, this guy seeing, you know, seeing nonsense. That's why when you said earlier about 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 the report of him supposedly having seen a mirage or them trying to make it sound like he saw a mirage, I had never heard this before because I know that the report is still considered un, unexplained. That's something thrown into the Wikipedia entry. And, of course, lots of people can edit those things. Now, in terms of Maury Island, isn't that officially regarded as a hoax, though? Uh, I think the, the official FBI report on it was that, that this was a hoax and that the, the, the players, in this case, Chrisman and Dahl, were perpetrating some kind of a hoax and that Arnold and Smith and, and indirectly Ray Palmer were just caught up in this hoax. They, the writer, uh, I can't remember the name of the field, field agent who wrote the report at the time when it was initially released, when it was released under the Freedom of Information Act, it was redacted, it was edited, and I had to literally fill in the blanks to, to put the names of the principal players, and I simply was able to count spaces to do that. You know, if it, if it was Fred Christman, you know, I simply counted the spaces out, yeah, that fits. And it all made sense when I was done with it. And now I guess the whole report is out there for anybody to read in its entirety. Now let's look at what you're doing. Okay, you wrote the book, UFO Mysteries, A Reporter Seeks the Truth, back about 2001. What are you doing these days? What am I doing these days? Uh, talking to you on, on telephone so that you can broadcast this to your listeners all over the world. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you're still at it, more or less, although no new books on UFOs are in your horizon. You've got, of course, science fiction story you're working on. Yeah, I've been uh, been working on a novel for several years now, and I'm, I'm getting better at it. I've had to refine my technique. One thing I discovered, and I'm sure you, you understand this, is that you know I was a journalist for many, many years, and journalism became second nature to me. You but know, fiction is something that's a different world because I've done exactly, that and I've exactly lived right. in that world. Of course, our friend Chris O'Brien has a site called Our Strange Planet, ourstrangeplanet.com, and I think finally we're going to start revising that site, Chris, right? Yep. By the way, there are lots of ways to contact us here at the Powercast. You can write us news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. You can send us a tweet. The Powercast, what else can we be the Powercasts on Twitter. Kurt Southerly, thanks for joining us this week on The Powercast. Thank you for having me, Gene. It's been fun. The Powercast, featuring Gene Steinberg and Christopher O'Brien, is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in... 
The Paracast. <laughs>